people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. This is Moses Wine. He's a detective. Colonel Mustard in the dining room. This is his gun. He's a private eye. The crayon belongs to one of his kids. Let me do the talking, okay? Okay. You're the dick. And this is the big fix. I'm the dick. Look, you were a campus activist in the 60s. You've got a background for this job. You want it or don't you? <laughs> Where did you get this guy? Richard Dreyfus, winner of the Academy Award for Best Actor, is Moses Wine in The Big Fix. It is not that I want you to lie. I would never, ever ask you to lie. What happened to your arm? I broke it during karate exercises. <laughs> <laughs> it's just that there are some things that you don't want to volunteer, you dig. What happened to your hand? Bar fight with a butcher. See, that's called being an adult. Suzanne, do me a favor. Next time, divorce a corporate lawyer, okay? Daddy, I can't sleep. Okay. This is the story of a real guy. I went to the animal fair. He's got two kids and an ex-wife, and he's got a past. One day, the past comes back into his life, and his life is never the same again. Lila Shay. We need an investigator. Occupation. Getting good at it. For whom are you conducting this search, Mr. White? What do you know about the underground? What happened to Luis Vasquez? How the hell should I know? Don't shoot! Don't shoot! Don't shoot! I'm the one who called! Mr. Wine, you have two small children. They shot at my kids, Perry. They shot at my kids. Moses Wine never liked guns. What's going on? But he knows how to use them. What kind of a detective are you? And he doesn't like to be pushed. He'll push back. Look, you know, we're going to have hundreds of people killed because of burned out cynics like you. Save it! I don't have to talk to you people. You got any real evidence on me? Let me see it! Moses Wine is a private detective. Yep. Tacky. It's the pits. A happy, funny man. I think I've broken the case. A desperate, violent world. Some Yankee Doodle. My version. Your version is too dirty. A very real world. A very real guy. Richard Dreyfus is Moses Wine. The Big Fix. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Andrew Nettie. The 60s arrival, Lila. Also back in the booth is Mr. Jedediah Ayers. I don't think you're completing the source of your relationships. On this special episode of The Projection Booth, we are looking at Jeremy Kagan's The Big Fix. Released in 1978, the film stars Richard Dreyfuss as Moses Wine, a radical in the 60s who's now a down-on-his-luck detective who gets put on a case that takes him back to his old stomping grounds. We will be spoiling this film as we talk about it, so if you don't want anything ruined, please turn off the podcast and go watch the film. We will still be here. So, Jed, when was the first time you saw The Big Fix, and what did you think? 
I actually just saw it a couple of years ago, maybe three or four years ago, I think it, it, it was definitely Andrew who told me I should see it. I guess you were probably working on your piece on it. But um, yeah, I found it. I watched it. And I definitely knew the poster from the video store days in the 80s, walking around the grocery store, looking at the movies. And I never saw it then, but uh, I really enjoyed it. And I think I would have really loved it had I seen it as a youngster. I think stuff like Fletch and the books of like uh, Kinky Friedman or um, the Carl Reiner movie. Uh, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. Yeah, those, those sort of uh, hard-boiled humorous takes on the hard-boiled stuff were what first got me into crime stuff. You know, I developed a taste for the straight stuff later, but um, but I really enjoyed. I think this would have fit kind of in there, bridged the gap a little bit earlier, maybe between the uh, the funny stuff and the the harder stuff. But um, I really enjoyed it a couple years ago and couldn't believe I'd never seen it before. Rewatching it for this podcast, I do think. It's one that doesn't it doesn't hold up quite as strong as that initial impression with multiple repeat viewings, at least in quick succession. But yeah, I still like it quite a bit. And Andrew, how about yourself? Yeah, as Jed said, I got asked to write a booklet essay on this for a re-release of the film. I think it was from by Powerhouse Films in the UK, which is the first time I watched it. And like Jed, I remember seeing the advertisements for this film in video stores back in the day, but I'd never seen it. And then I rewatched it. So I rewatched it. That was a couple of years ago, I think. I first saw it. And I rewatched it yeah, a few days ago, obviously, for this podcast. I'd call it a really interesting film. I don't think it's a great film. And I certainly agree with you, Jed, that it didn't hold up quite as well the second time around as I had the first time. I don't think the plot, some, 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 some issues with the plot, I think. But look, I think it's a really interesting film. It's a really interesting film the way in which it sort of re-envisioned it's part of that new wave of private investigator films that happened in 1970s america i think it's really interesting in the context of being a film albeit sort of a bit removed about the vietnam war and the blowback of the vietnam war on american society i think it's an interesting film about the whole decline of the counterculture generally i think it's got a great cast got a great score that bill conti score I like it. I don't love it, but I really think it's an interesting film. That's funny. The one thing that I kept writing down in my notes was, I can't stand the score. It just is so <laughs> bombastic to me a lot of times. And I'm just like, it feels like it's somebody who is really trying to make their mark. And it's like, damn, yeah, Bill, you made your mark. You know, you, we have Rocky by this time, but it's really just in your face in certain scenes. I'm like, oh, could you? Tone it down just a little bit. It's definitely a little uh, schizophrenic. It jumps around from the sort of pop string orchestral stuff to the like ragtime kind of sounding stuff. And then there's that. My favorite is the funk. That sort of funk score is like, yeah, I like this. I'd stick with that. Yeah, I like it. I bought the CD. I like it while I make love to my wife. Oh, very nice. <laughs> very nice. <laughs> you should invite me sometime. I also remember this from the age of the video store. There was a video store that was going out of business around here, probably, gosh, 25 years ago, maybe less than that. And I went in and I just bought a ton of VHS tapes, including that one, but I never watched it. And 
I just always was aware of this film. It's kind of like that uh, George Siegel film, The Black Bird, or The Cheap Detective. It's like, I, I'm aware of these detective films from the 70s, and I want to see them, but I just never took the dive. And so over the last few years, I have watched all of those. There's still a few that elude me. Like, I still haven't seen The Late Show with Art Carney. I hear that that's kind of a little similar as far as a lighter detective type thing, but there are some really dark moments in the big fix as well. They definitely start off with the comic, the whole idea of that kind of ragtime score that you're talking about. We've got Moses there counting these turkeys that are being, I guess, not counted otherwise. And he's trying to pay off his gambling debt. Like I said, very down on his luck type of detective. He's got his two kids with him, and he's accosted by a cop pretty early on in the movie. And we get to see really what kind of detective he is, where he's got the gun in the glove compartment, the chamber's completely out of the gun, and there's a crayon sticking out of the front of the gun. Everything for this guy seems to revolve around his kids. And it's this kind of, I know you guys are both fans of the nice guys, this whole idea of like having the kid in tow. And with this, it's the two kids in tow, much younger, obviously, than the kid and the nice guys. But it's still kind of the same thing, like very domestic. We get to see later on, there's even more toys that just keep showing up. Like his car is kind of a mess. His little VW bug is just a mess with all of these toys all over through it. It's pretty cool. I agree with you that there's a lot of good ideas in here, and it's a really good movie. It's not a great movie, but it definitely has some interesting ideas, especially the whole idea of the radical who is now kind of phased into society a little bit. He still wants to be that radical, but revisiting his old days, having a person from his past with Lila coming back in there, Lila Shea, and reinvigorating him letting him remember those glory days at Berkeley and then kind of getting embroiled inside of a mystery that's based a lot around those old days. It kind of reminds me of like, like a law and order episode or something where it's like, Oh, here are these people that were in the weather underground. And I think they mentioned the weather underground, but everything is just like slightly off. It's not like the real cases. It's just a little bit of a, a twist on those actual days of all the protests against the war. But they do that very well, I think. I mean, I think that's one thing that the film does really well is the way it portrays this man who is, well, you know, the politics have moved on, the 60s have moved on. Obviously, you know, the counterculture was still bumping along to some degree, but it had largely died. But he hasn't completely moved on. And as you say, so I guess there's opportunity. He gets a case. He needs the money. He takes the case. The case bumps him up against the remnants of that dying counterculture and that change left political movements and the art and the backwash and be, you know, there's some blowback in Vietnam. And I think that's actually one thing and watching it again recently, a couple of days ago, that's one thing it does really well. I think, you know, the disillusioned radical lawyer, the weatherman type group, who I think are called the linkers. And of course the character who is kind of like almost like a sort of MacGuffin character almost throughout the whole thing, Epis played by F. Murray Abraham, who I just, you know, no film is not improved by even a small bit of F. Murray Abraham. Oh, and he is so good in this too. As that sort of former 60s radical who's gone underground now. But it's got lots of little other layers. I mean, it actually harks back to an earlier period of the US left in the guise of his old communist aunt. 
you know, who basically hangs around the old age person home, you know, having Marxist diatribes and arguing with Moses about Bukhara and anarchism and all that kind of thing. Also, the way, you know, it, it talks about Vietnam. Yeah, I think it does that really, really well, I think. I think it's a, a great example of, of not enough films I'm aware of that do that. Inherent Vice comes to mind. Cutter's Way comes to mind. Oh, the, yeah. I got big Cutter's Way vibes from yeah. this one. The Big Lebowski tell always in the conversation of Cutter's Ways in the conversation. In a lot of private eye stuff, disillusions, washed out private eye stuff. It's somebody who used to be a cop or used to be a you know, a prosecutor or something like that got said, Hey, you know, maybe, uh, fascism isn't so great. And I'm, I move, move a little further left and into, uh, into the private sector. And I like that this is kind of coming from the other direction where, um, you know, all his, uh, leftist people who knew him 10 years earlier are kind of embarrassed by his, uh, you know, this is more joining the establishment as far as they're concerned. That's kind of interesting. I thought, I don't know how intentional Roger Simon was in approaching it that way. I mean, there were some tropes I think he intended to subvert in the privatized genre and uh, stuff like that. So I'm not sure if that was one, but I do think it's nice. It's a refreshing sort of change from the usual fare there. And, and I do wish there were more examples I can come up with that. Mike, I'm glad you brought up the Late Show because that is one I revisited preparing for this episode. And that one actually, I think, improved with a uh, second viewing. thought it was a little slighter the first time I watched it. And this time I thought, oh, no, this is quite good. And you also brought up uh, The Nice Guys. And I, I do think that perhaps Ryan Gosling's cast on his arm is perhaps even a nod. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. I, had, was, I hadn't uh, thought about that yet. Here I was thinking of other detectives from that same period of time that also were marked by stuff. So like Jake gets with, yeah, exactly. With that bandage across his nose or, and then for me, that always reminds me of Ellie Gould in California split where he's not really a detective, but he has that same type of bandage. It's interesting. The late show has been getting a bit of love on the socials recently. I see, you know, how something's interesting, the way that. Films sort of just, they start sort of seeing references to them everywhere. And it's like, oh, it's, it's just sort of spreading a bit. Like, I still haven't seen The Late Show, but I think what I think is interesting about, apart from the 60s stuff and how it deals with that notion of, you know, a, a person who was very much involved in the radical anti Vietnam War movements, et cetera, of the 1960s, and then is coping with the fact that, that you know, Politics are turning, and of course, two years later, you know, Reagan would be elected in a you know huge majority. So, I mean, the politics very definitely was had turned. He was just trying to keep up with it. But it also is a really interesting film about when you think about it. Other seventies PI films, they're they're a bit different to an earlier generation of PI films. The way that sort of government secrecy, Watergate, the war in Vietnam, civil rights, the counterculture, you know, it creates a much more paranoid cynical atmosphere in PI films in the 1970s in America. And it also ushers in this era, and you see it in the films in the 1970s, where, you know, it's less trusting of government, the boundary between what's right and wrong, you know, quote unquote, has sort of blurred and investigating justice for crimes, you know, whether it's about someone being murdered in their home or, you know, carpet bombing a small Southeast Asian nation is a kind of quite complicated issue and it's, the outcomes are often very pyrrhic. 
the victories are very pyrrhic in that. And I think, and often the other thing about those seventies PI films, it's actually the cops or the state that is actually the person who has committed the crime. You know, I think Clute is another example of that era of different seventies PI film. It was of course the most misanthropic PI film ever made. Hickey and Bogues fits in there. We haven't talked about Altman's Long Goodbye because I think Moses Wide's character feels very much like Gould's in The Long Goodbye, or as I call it, the most overrated crime film made in America in the 1970s. Arthur Penn's Night Moves is another one. And to a degree, I mean, Cutter and Bone is 1981, but I think its sensibility is very firmly rooted in the 1970s. And of course, in its own way, because Moses Wide is not he is a professional PI, but he's also a bit of a bit of an amateur. Traders Hardcore, I think, is another sort of interesting PI typeish private investigator, amateur private investigator film, and they're all very different to what came before them. I think the nod to the long goodbyes, especially at because the the way that Altman described Gould as being Rip Van Winkle, kind of waking up from the nineteen fifties when we had Philip Marlowe kind of more in his element, and then he's awake now in the 70s, and he's very out of it. It's like he missed the 60s. He missed all of that. He's kind of a throwback, and Moses is a throwback because of where he is now in 1978 versus where he was in 1968, so I found that very apt. You know, I was not very conscious <laughs> when the movie came out. I was a little kid, but... um it struck me this time that they keep referring to the 60s as the 60s in a way that I don't think, I don't know, maybe in the 90s, you'd refer to the 80s as a, a decade that stood out with a, a particular flavor to it. People knew what you meant when you said the 80s, but the 60s, I wasn't sure how long you had to move forward in time before you looked back and thought the 60s was a very distinct time people knew what you meant when you said the 60s and this was what 78 you know not even a decade later they keep talking about the 60s as if that was a long time ago and everybody knows what you're talking about when you mentioned the 60s and you know there are little things like that that surprised me in the film that um i'm not sure when the 60s began being referred to as the 60s and being a something that most people would know exactly what you were talking about. You know, if I said the 2010s or the early 2000s or something like that, now I'm not sure. We'd probably all have different ideas about what I meant when I said that. But I think just a few years later, already referring to the 60s as a distinct decade is, is an interesting uh, thing. Yeah, it's like the little speech that um, the Ralph Brown character gives at the end of uh, With Nail and I, where he's talking about, you know, the 70s are about to begin, the 60s are over. And They're selling hippie wigs in Woolworths, man. The greatest decade in the history of mankind is over. And as presuming Ed here has so consistently pointed out, we have failed to paint it black. This new era is changing. I mean, I don't want to be very flippant about the 1960s, but you think about how many changes happened in the 1960s. I mean, it was just, it felt like so much packed into 10 years. I mean, just look at the Beatles. You know, the Beatles were playing in Hamburg in like 61. They're taking over America in 64. They're breaking up by what's early 69. 70s. Yeah, 69. And like they went through their entire 
you know, change from the mop top to the bearded Jesus type look that John had. I mean, it was wild just to look at four people and how they changed over 10 years. I mean, there's a concept in sort of uh, sociology and political theory, though, this concept of the long 60s is a concept which talks about the fact that, of course, the 60s have their genesis in the late 50s, and then they go right into the 1970s. So it's a sort of, it's interesting what you say, Jen, about that, because I think in that respect, on one level, you could be cynical and just say the big fix is just, it's a sort of like an average PI feel. It's an average sort of slightly cosy PI feel that really doesn't have a lot to say, but there's other things about it that are actually quite groundbreaking, and that thing about the 60s is one of them. And that was very conscious, I think, too, in the sense that Kagan, the director, if, you know, I mean, you can look at what, he's, what else he's done. He obviously was part of that generation in the 60s, so he's trying to put that on film. And what's well, at Simon's, he very deliberately, he was shopping around a book, and I think I can't remember what it was about, but his publisher wasn't interested, you know, he's, it, no one was interested, and then he came up with this idea of very deliberately writing this book about a PI in the 1970s who's an ex-radical and how he's dealing with with the fact that times have changed. So that's all very deliberate in the book, and Kagan translates that quite well onto the film. The other aspect, I think, of the big fix, which is really, really interesting, is the way that Vietnam, I mean, Vietnam is all throughout exploitation and grindhouse film in the 70s, but in terms of mainstream film, and this is a mainstream film, no one really talked about Vietnam until about 78 in pictures, and I would really challenge you to find a mainstream film before 1978 that had any kind of in-depth interrogation of either the war in-country or what its impacts were in America or anything else. And then in 78, you've got Camino's The Deer Hunter, you've got uh, the Who'll Stop the Rain, which of course is based on the 1974 novel by Robert Stone, which is a, a really underrated film, I think, and you've got Hal Ashby's Coming Home, and you've got this film. And there probably are others, I don't know, but 78, it's on that crest of films, which are talking about Vietnam. And then, of course, in 1979, you've got Apocalypse Now, and then all of a sudden it's okay to do films about, in fact, it's profitable to do films about Vietnam. So, yeah, I think it's quite a groundbreaking film in that, in its own little sort of way, I think. Even looking at this just as a detective story, it's really kind of neat the way that we are put on the case of one thing trying to find Howard Eppes, this former radical, very much in that Jerry Rubin style. I mean, his whole fashion sense is based on Jerry Rubin. His book, Rip It Off, is the cover is very much like Do It, the Jerry Rubin book. And steal this book. And steal this book. And he's going after that person. And then along the way, he gets that one, but two more missing persons cases dumped in his lap. He gets this whole thing of, Where's Luis Vasquez? Where's Luis Vasquez? I guess Vasquez is Hawthorne's running mate, and I didn't really get that until the end of the movie when there's the Hawthorne-Vasquez placard on the side of this van. And then there's also, where's Oscar Picari Jr.? And that kind of comes out of nowhere, too. And you're just like, okay. And so, and all of these guys are all tied together back in 1968, but now here in 1978, Moses is put on the case of all three of them by the end of the film, that's a kind of a radical thing that just, you know, there's usually like, well, that case is related to this case. And now we find out that they're really tied together. You know, we've seen that in so many things like LA Confidential and just all of these different films where you find out that the little case is related to the big case. 
you know, Evelyn Mulray's husband is related to this, which then goes to this, which then ends up with Noah Cross. And, you know, here we have these three guys and just Moses, his, he's got his hands full, definitely. And he just, he's not that great of a detective sometimes. It really takes a lot. And by the end, yeah, it's like, oh, dad, you solved the case. And he's like, yeah, I solved the case because he's pretty surprised when he finds out who Oscar Picari Jr. is. I had to watch the film a couple of times to follow up. <laughs> With most of these detective films, the plot becomes a little... Uh, my favorite films in the genre are strong on vibe. And if the vibe is uh, is good, I can hang with them and enjoy them. And I usually lose the plot, which is one of the reasons I love Inherent Vice so much. It's that <laughs> it doubles and triples down on that Byzantine paranoid plot. But yeah, this one, I was trying to pay attention and it was probably the third or fourth time watching it that I felt like I remembered to to try and connect all the dots. <laughs> That's a classic PI thing though, isn't it? Yeah. The case that you're given, the simplicity of the apparent simplicity of the case is in complete inverse proportionality to actually just how complex it's going to turn out. In the case of this film, I thought it turned out to be a bit too complex. Like you, Jen, I actually struggled to follow aspects of the plot towards that last 20 or 30 minutes when they're sort of starting to wrap it up a bit. Yeah, and that just turns out that the father's somehow in, in Vietnam and he's got this Vietnamese guy called Harold Pak Choi, I think it is, or Chow. Yeah, who was, who I looked and I thought, where have I seen that guy? And of course, he's he was James Wing Woo and he played the creepy assassin in Marathon Man who tries to garrote. Roy Schneider. But anyway, that obviously had a long and distinguished film career there. But yeah, it gets very complicated. I couldn't quite figure it. I had to rewatch it that last 20 minutes a few times to sort of get what was going on. I don't think that quite landed. Yeah, the end of this is really like, because we get that little tiny introduction to Pak uh, Chow earlier in the film and him going in, Moses going into that gambling den and Sonia calling out Harold, Harold, and finally the one guy seems to recognize the name and then he's trying to get more information. They just kind of drop that thread very quickly afterwards. Definitely you don't picture him coming back later in the film with a remote control controlling the driving of a a van (laughs) that is filled to the brim with dynamite. At first, when you're watching, you're like, who is this guy? Why do I know? know?" And that whole idea that I would think almost like wouldn't it make more sense if he was Vietnamese and not Korean? They make a real point to say that he's Korean. But at the same time, I'm just like, this is that kind of like Orientalism of the older detective films. You know, he's very othered because he is Asian. And I'm just thinking of like the big sleep and stuff where it's like you've got Geiger and all of his Asian accoutrement and just like, oh yeah, blame the Asians. The Asians are an easy target. So the person who's actually driving the truck via remote control is the Asian character. I'm like, okay. But yeah, he's doing it all at the behest of Fritz Weaver, who again, we saw him one time in the film. He was super upset about his son being gone and he's trying to find his son. Bakari Senior. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's also the marathon man. Yeah, to quote uh, Rob Burgundy about that dynamite truck, that escalated quickly. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> We've got this guy walking around who hasn't even really got a functioning gun. 
one arm is broken, got his kids in tow, and then all of a sudden we're blowing up a large part of LA. Okay. Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. When he calls and he's just like, I'm going to blow up the freeway. And I'm like, wait, <laughs> ooh, what? What's going on? Yeah. It really, it, it was funny because I watched this, you know, a few months ago and I was able to watch up to the part with, F. Murray Abraham finally coming into the film and his house getting machine gunned. And that's where I had to stop it. So I didn't know how quickly it escalates to your point. And so, <laughs> because after that, they just kicked this movie into high gear. It just really goes nuts. You got the assassins that are working for the mob. And I'm like thinking of, of Kennedy in the 60s and how was the mob tied into that, perhaps? And yeah, here's these mobsters. And I'm like, wow, we have really taken a turn with this movie. So when I went back and I rewatched the whole darn thing, I was like, wow, I did not expect this ending. Mike, I liked what you said earlier about the way, um, you know, he starts with a simple case and then gets a bunch of stuff added on to it because I want to give Roger Simon some credit for, you know, I wasn't sure about some of the trope inversions and subversions of if those were, I know some of them were intentional, but I do think it's kind of a cool writing thing that he did with that, with the um, all the ties. We talked about the Howard Epps character being sort of a mashup of Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin uh, in their books. And of course, Jerry Rubin was involved in EST training, which is uh, lampooned in this with Ron Rifkin's character doing uh, the, the best Bernhard's entirely scientific training. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was trying to wrap my mind around exactly what they meant, EST. And basically, it sounded like it was, it was about trying to uh, get to a point where just the normal unconscious working out of your life is working out your personal hangups so they don't have something over you anymore. And that's really the way the plot of the big fix works you know he's making fun of uh bonnie bedelia's ex-wife and ron rifkin her bimbo uh <laughs> her uh her current boyfriend who's you know apparently she's very into whatever the latest fads in um self-improvement and things like that are and, and he's a best trainer takes it way too seriously but the drivers character he's kind of doing that by kind of re-engaging you know he says lila shay showing up again awoke something in him and he's back in it now and he's you know he, he starts just taking a job for money but of course ends up you know getting fired from that but continuing on because it's now it's personal with lila being murdered and and so yeah just by kind of re-engaging consciously with whatever his role now is in society it, just participating in it he's working out without happened to uh go to one of these seminars he's he's working out all his personal stuff just naturally it's coming to him in the course of his of his day i thought oh, that's a nice that's a really nice little uh dovetail that i'm not sure i certainly didn't catch it the first time but um, i did want to give roger Simon some credit for that and he gets to complete that self-actualization by shooting pat jump yeah <laughs> <laughs> so it's now he's ready for the 80. Ring yeah, on Reagan. Right, right. Now, right. I'll be in a couple of, in Moses Wine film too. I'm going to be patrolling LA shooting bad guys. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, you know, Ron Rifkin, of course, I mentioned LA Confidential earlier. He's one of the best parts of LA Confidential for me. Him there in the back. I always say in LA Confidential. He's trimming his nose. Yeah. You know, he's the guy that they hang off over the side of the building. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. The next one of you won't be coming in on the bus. Yeah. He's amazing. I always like that. He kind of reminds me, he's very much to me a Shane Black character. This whole idea of the ex wife with this bimbo. And Moses continually, like, that's one, that's two. And then once it gets to four, <laughs> that's it. Punches him right in the no nose. More. Actually, it was five. Was on yeah, the He actually right. punched him because four, it was, and you don't get any more. Yes. <laughs> and the, you were talking about the writing. It's amazing to me that Dreyfus broke his arm before they started shooting this. So they had to cover it with the cast. And then they wrote all those lines, you know, all of his excuses. And I love those excuses that he gives to every single person that it changes every single time. And it changes in a way for him to be more sympathetic to them. You know, when he's talking with the Latinos, he's like, oh yeah, I was a border patrol guy. I was trying to help out this kid. You know, when he's talking with the one guy, oh yeah, I got in a bar fight with some birchers, you know, just like all of these different excuses he's throwing out for his cast. I thought it was fantastic, and that really adds to this. I mean, it's amazing. Something accidental ends up helping this movie out more than I think it really had any right to. The other thing that is really good about this film, and I feel a bit strange saying this, because I have spent very little time in LA, but of course, those of us outside the borders of the USA are all your imperial subjects, so we are you know, um, familiar beyond our immediate experience with what goes on in America, but... It seems to me to be a great film about LA. It's a great LA film. Like he's going in some really interesting areas, you know, the whether it's the sort of old person's home, the retiree's home, the, the gambling club, that whole sort of Chicago interface that you're sort of delving in that. He's really going around LA and it brings out a lot a lot of LA, you know, that some of those other films just don't do. I love when we finally meet back up with Howard Epis, when we finally get that part of the mystery solved and just to see what has become of the radical that he went underground. He's trying to stay underground. He's trying to do all the right things. And then eventually he goes in, he's delivering stuff to a ad agency. And he's like, I can write copy better than any of these other alcoholics. I can do this just to hear that patter that like sixties patter coming out of his mouth. But now when he raises up his hand, like power to the people, he also raises up that spatula. Like, and here I am, a dad in not necessarily suburbia. He's got a really nice house. He's got a pool boy. He's got Mandy Patinkin as a pool boy, which is <laughs> one of the best little moments in the film. But I just love that he is still there and he's like claiming that he wrote all of these great chants from the 1960s, like LBJ, how many kids did you kill today? Or never trust anyone over 30. He's like, oh yeah, those are mine. I wrote all those. And it's like, wow. And you just realize what a blowhard asshole this Howard Epis guy is, even though everybody has been saying, oh, he's so full of himself. He's so conceited. But then when you finally get to meet him, you're like, yeah, yeah, he is conceited, but he's very charming at the same time. I would love to spend an afternoon with this guy, but I don't think I could take more than that. Okay. You don't think he could become a regular on protection boost? F. Murray Abraham is welcome on the show whenever he wants to be. <laughs> oh, I just love that guy. He is so good at it. Why is he just not in? He just doesn't seem to be in that many films. Well, he's in Succession now, that TV show oh. that just ended. Yeah. 
So I haven't seen that. No, I didn't either, but apparently that's where I'm pretty sure that's where he was. He was in White Lotus second season. Oh, okay. Well, that's TB. I'm talking about Bill. Yeah, no, I agree. And apparently after this, he took a few years off and did a lot of theater before he came roaring back as Salieri. Which I noticed just last night that Amadeus is on Netflix at the moment. So now I just have to find three and a half hours of my time to sort of like watch that film again. I take it back. He was not in succession to Jed's point. He was in the White Lotus, and now he's in White House Plumbers, which looks pretty darn interesting to me. I'm curious to do that. And then he was also the, what a waste. He was the voice of Kyanshu in Moon Knight. I mean, that whole show was a waste of time, but it was really sad. Whenever I would see his name in the credits, I'm just like, Abraham's in this. And that's like, Oh, he's just doing a voice. Okay. Yeah, well, I'm hoping he's going to be in my new Netflix show, White Succession. But Mike, you brought up how quick on his feet that Moses Wine is with the cast on his arm and using that to help him out, you know, help him ingratiate himself to people. And and I, I do think that's something that is nice. It shows why he's doing what he's doing, why uh, he's you know, maybe able to make a living at it because he's quick on his feet that way. He's also really bad at it in other ways like when he goes to the the gambling den and he's playing cards and he he just starts talking about the governor's race and saying all this really uh really obvious bait for the guy he's tailing and the guy he's tailing gets up and leaves when it's his turn and the deal and he can't he can't follow because he's got a deal the cards i was like idiot that was a so yeah it's fun both the uh, the ways he's kind of shown to be not great at what he's doing, you know, crying out second this guy and that uh, blowing his lead in a very, very obvious uh, way. But then, yeah, he is quick on his feet. He does uh, think of all the, uh, the ways to ingratiate himself that whoever he's talking to, the reasons why his arm's broken. A lot of those 70s PIs are kind of a bit shit at their job. You know, Hickey and Bogues, I mean, the you know, Marlowe with the long goodbye. Gene Hackman's character and night moves are all pretty crappy private investigators and, you know, also Cutter and Bone. They're, well, they're sort of accidental private investigators, but they're sort of, it's about the vibe, as you say, Jed. I think that's a really good way of putting it. A lot of those, lot of those 70s PI films are terrific, but they're terrific because of the vibe and the zeitgeist that they're, you know, and that whole notion that they don't even really know what they're investigating half the time, which is very similar to Moses' wife. He's got really no idea what's going on at all. No, and when... When Lithgow comes in and admits that he's Oscar Picari Jr., you see the shock on Dreyfus's face. So when later on his kid's like, oh, you figured it out. He's like, yeah, sure I did. I mean, yeah, that's the <laughs> moment where you're like, oh, he didn't know this at all. You know, and, and you could tell by him mulling over all those clues and using the Cluedo board as like kind of his sounding board. It's just like, well, there's this person and this person. He's trying to put all these pieces together. And it's definitely not as simple as Colonel Mustard in the kitchen with the lead pipe. You know, there's a lot more going on here. Where do we stand on Dreyfus? So I've got to say, an actor that I've really never had much skin in the game with. I mean, it's probably with the exception of Hooper and Jaws. Never really seen a great deal that he's in. My first thing that I really remember him making an impression on me in was actually Stakeout. Mm. And I hope that's a great like Stakeout. Really like steak out and his sort of never seen it. Charming, oh, it's so good, Andrew. 
Yeah, I'll, I'll add it to the list. He was great in that. I thought he made a big impression, you know. And I saw Down and Out, Beverly Hills, Moon Over Parador, stuff like that when I was fairly young. Yeah, and then of course, uh, Tin Men. I loved Tin Men a lot. But uh, I do think that the Big Fix and Stakeout make a nice, uh, nice pairing for for uh, Richard Dreyfuss crime stuff. You know, some of his most recent things have been the sort of real cheap, hard boiled, you know, straight to DVD red box crime films that are. It's a paycheck, I'm sure. But he's, it's funny that he's he's kind of this like super gruff, tough guy persona in, in these, and he's got the voice for it. But uh, I'd like that fucking obnoxious laugh that he does you know in uh, in everything in the 70s and, and 80s that, that was used to great effect i think in uh, in some of those earlier roles yeah he's an interesting one for me because when i was growing up he was just specializing in obnoxious assholes for a long time so like you mentioned down and out in beverly hills right that's the one that he's yeah. in or like what was it let it ride i think was another one um what about bob where you're just like dude just relax you know or him even going nuts and like the goodbye girl with all the you know the stockings or whatever on the the line i'm just like i like to take showers every morning and i don't like the panties drying on the rod relax dude you know you don't have to get so bent out of shape but he would just be like this kind of spastic just would take it up to 11 super quick and you're like you really need to step it back a little bit him showing up in things like Red or his amazing role in Miranda 3D or was it 3 double D? What is that? Oh, it's a really bad Piranha film, but he shows up and he's kind of Hooper-esque in there. Every <laughs> serves. Uh, it was pretty small role, but he was pretty good in it. Or like Krippendorf's Tribe. I mean, he was just in a lot of bad things for a long time. And I didn't have any interest in seeing things like Mr. Hollow's Opus because of that. You know, it was just like, yeah, I don't don't want to do this. But over the years, I've grown to appreciate him quite a bit more. So when he shows up in little things like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. But of course, yeah, for me, it's like Close Encounters and Jaws are really where it's at for me. I have since gone back and watched Inserts. I really enjoy that film. And then he shows up, you know, he's a great dick and... Things like The Graduate, where he just shows up for a second, or the hell is Roland American Graffiti. I love him in American Graffiti. He's the character I relate to the most, more than any other of the people that are going around that night. I've really got to see um, Tin Men. Yes, you do. A minor car accident drives two rival aluminum siding salesmen the ridiculous extremes of man versus man in 1963 Baltimore. It's really good. They don't make him like that anymore. Uh-uh. Yeah. he's quite understated in the big fix i think he doesn't do i mean he does that laugh sometimes like jed was saying but he's not over the top he's not and actually some of my favorite things about the big fix are him when he's you know he's not really hard-boiled he does get to get get tough a couple of times you know when he's preparing to he's about to be assaulted and you know he's, he's preparing to fight these guys who are twice as large as he is and you know when the final confrontation uh, on the rooftop with the loaded gun but um god i believe him when he's crying in front of the cops yeah over lila shea and i like how warm he is with his 
with his kids, you know, I mean, the, the Shane Black trope of, uh, you know, kids involved and, you know, the kids are always assholes. I mean, they're, they're smarter than their fathers, but they're usually assholes and, uh, real prickly. And the, the parents are, you know, burnout, alcoholic you know, fuck ups, but, uh, but God, he's sweet with his kids and, and not even just his kids. You know, the first scene of him playing Clue with the by himself smoking pot and the it's Halloween and the uh, trick-or-treater shows up at his door, the little kid, and he comes out and like, the Groucho knows. You know, at first he's he's just kind of obnoxious to him, but then he, he says, you look really neat. And it, it's a real genuine sweetness that he brought to that. And I thought that was a pretty special touch this film that uh, Richard Dreyfus gets the credit for that. After this podcast, I'm going to go right out to the kitchen. I'm going to ask my partner to turn down the big, big soundtrack that we'll be playing. And then I'm going to hey, say- Are you going to invite me, Ray? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Uh, just to watch. Takeout and Tin Men double feature. I think there that, you might go. The, that might be the, you know, might be the go. That's a great way to spend your Saturday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's that might be- they go. I mean, I think we've got to give some credit to Kagan as well. I mean, did you the um the powerhouse DVD re-release of the Big Fix actually has some quite good extras in it. One of them is that interview with Kagan. Have you seen it? Where he does half the interview as a puppet. I think they ported all of those extras over to the indicator disc. That's the one that I have, and yeah, that's amazing. Okay, that the indicator and powerhouse are the same group, aren't they? Are they okay? They are, yes, that's right. Um, anyway, so he's he did some quite interesting stuff. I was singularly unsuccessful in finding any of his Kagan's made-for-TV films, but he did this because he was talking about how he cut his teeth and actually sort of became famous, you know, got the interest of studios by this film called 1975 made-for-TV film called Catherine, a.k.a. The Radical, starring Sissy Spacek, which is sort of intended to portray... His character loosely based on Diana Orton, who is one of the Weatherground bombers who died in 19, 1970 at that Green, Greenwich Village townhouse where the bomb they were making accidentally went off. And they did this really interesting film, which again has this wild IMDb sort of slug, Henry Winkler, 1977. And actually, props to Kagan, going back to that point about the fact that mainstream culture wasn't really talking about Vietnam until quite late in the 70s, 1977, Henry Winkler, a Vietnam veteran suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, breaks out of a VA hospital and goes on a road trip with a sympathetic traveller to start a worm farm in California with his fellow veterans. I saw that movie so many years ago. Is it good? Sounds wild. I mean, it's got Harrison Ford and Henry Winkler in it. That's why I watch it. Was I was so into Harrison Ford when I was a kid. I would watch anything that he was in, so... I was watching the Frisco Kid, Heroes, Force 10 from Navarone, Hanover Street, you know, any of those kind of things. So I do remember liking it, but I, I mean, I also loved Henry Winkler. I grew up on Happy Days. Boy, I watched about 15 Jeremy Kagan movies this year, and most of them were the made-for-TV things that I could find on YouTube and stuff like that. But um, 15 films. I'm surprised you'd notice your son, you know, your son went. God. Well, he's, he's, uh, did he just slip you a note that you just said, yeah, 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 okay, just I'm watching something? He obviously, I mean, like Journey of Natty Gan was big to me when I was a kid. 
And I do think, you know, I revisited that one and I was really pleasantly surprised by how well it held up. I thought this is a really, really strong, you know, family film, but an adventure film and really nicely set against the backdrop of, you know, labor politics and things like that. I mean, pretty good stuff. And most of his stuff, you know, you could call him a journeyman director, just kind of taking jobs. But there really is a, you know, between the sort of social issues and political, you know, leftist political stuff and the, uh, the you know, Jewish identity, those themes really run throughout all of his stuff that I can tell. I mean, maybe less big man on campus, which was. Did you end up watching that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, boy. Said, what is that one about? That's huh? Quasimodo on a college campus. Yeah. Oh, of course. Well, yeah. An idea of its time had come. <laughs> well, it was uh, it was a very uneven filmography, but there was an identity to it. Even the the real, like I said, the made for TV stuff and, and some of the stuff that I would say was you know pretty schlocky. There was still something personal to it. You could tell this is this is a guy who's he's not just taking the movie of the week. It's you know either went after these jobs or was picked for them because of his point of view. So I did appreciate that about him. I did think Catherine was quite good. Heroes, you know, was sort of charming in its um, shaggy dog, a sort of free-spirited way. I thought it was interesting that, you know, it came out, what, about five or six months after Star Wars and Harrison Ford, you know, making a splash in Star Wars and then his next film, you know, the next year is the big fix. And Richard Travis says to that cop, may the force be with you. And uh, <laughs> in the big fix, I thought that was, uh, that was odd. I wondered how much of a boost Heroes had gotten because of Star Wars. I Again, I was too young to know it. The only one I could track down, I watched Conspiracy, the trial of the Chicago 8. The only one I could find on YouTube by Channel of Choice, 1987. I thought it was pretty good. I mean, again, to your point, Ed, you know, a director who's got some real skin in the game in terms of getting what films he can get, using the mediums he can get, but nonetheless, skin in the game in terms of trying to critically and creatively and intelligently look at where are we in the 70s and 80s after what happened in the 60s and early 70s in Vietnam? Where are we as a society? Where are we going? You know, I think it's really good. I really appreciate a lot of the smaller roles. We talked about Ron Rifkin, F. Murray Abraham, Fritz Weaver, but then you get Larry Bishop as the police detective that's questioning him, or maybe he's from the FBI. I'm not sure who's interrogating him at that point. He's fantastic. I really like his role in this, and he's only in the movie for five minutes, but he has such menace to him in those few minutes he's on screen. I was afraid you were about to disparage him because I do think he was a standout. And I think he's standout in most of the, I mean, God, his scene in what, Kill Bill Volume 2 is probably my favorite scene in that whole movie. He's just such a great, great character. And um, yeah, I think he's a much better small character actor than writer-director. Not a big fan of Mad Dog Time? I'm not a big fan of Mad Dog. Uh, or Hellrat, but yeah. um, you get uh, more Richard Dreyfus or Mad Dog one. Time either. Wait, Did I said that. You said Mad Dog Time. Mad Dog Time. What was the one with Dennis Leary that you wrote? 
anyway, yeah, he's somebody I'm always happy to see show up in a small role in, in one of these uh, one of these movies. But yeah, I, I'm surprised he he wasn't in more. I missed that Frank Doubleday was the partner of the blonde assassin. Frank Doubleday, I love whenever he shows up in things. I just wish he had more to do. He is mostly known as Romero in Escape from New York, the guy with the filed down teeth and the crazy hair who is like hissing at Snake Plissken. And he's hissing at um, Hawk in that movie. He's amazing. What was he in the big fix? I missed him in that big fix. So there are the two guys with machine guns that come in. Oh, he's one, he's one of those guys. Yeah. And they focus on the one guy, the blonde guy that they say, you know, hey, Jonas. And it's like, then F. Murray Abraham's like, his name was Jonas. And I'm like, okay. And they go after him. But Frank Doubleday just kind of disappears after that one. Yeah, I definitely heard Jonas, but he's credited at least on Letterboxd as Jonah. Oh, uh, but yeah, I definitely heard Jonas. I was looking for Jonas. Uh-oh. Oh, he's credited on IMDb as Jonah. Jonah as well. But yeah. I swear they said Jonas and he, he was in like the only stuff I've seen him in besides Big Fix was he's in several Cassavetes films. So interesting, the little connections to these, you know, between Dreyfus and Kagan and Paul Mazursky and, you know, these sort of people who work together again and again cross-pollinate even uh roger simon's i think it's his wife wrote a 70s political satire dick mm-hmm. about uh the girls uh getting nixon eye right <laughs> right i remember when that came out at theaters yeah pretty sure that she was yeah cheryl long long and i think was uh connected to roger simon so yeah just kind of found myself going in little circles uh switching over to watching Paul Mazursky movies and uh, Jeremy Kagan stuff and Richard Dreyfuss. I really like the Marxist aunt. She's great. Rita, Rita Katane, who died in 1993. But she was great, I thought. She added another little layer, as I said earlier, to that, which I really liked. Yeah, I especially liked when the political candidate is at the old folks' home and she's like, you really want to know what I think? <laughs> and let's go, of course. She's just great in everything. We really haven't talked about that much. And yet, like, as soon as he shows up on screen, I'm immediately suspicious of this guy because I just am thinking of him in like obsession and uh, blowout and these other political type thrillers. And I'm like, don't trust that guy. And I was glad that I didn't, though he seems very sincere through so much of it. And man, oh man, there was one part of the movie where my wife is like, is he standing on a box? And I'm like, I don't think so. I think he's just that much taller than Richard Dreyfus. Like there's a couple scenes where yeah. he is just towering above Richard Dreyfus. I think Dreyfus is five, four, very diminutive. It's fun when he, he kind of switches gear into the, that really sort of aggressive mode. Cause yeah, it's kind of, you got to in there. You're that size. That guy's, Gotta be easily over six foot tall. I mean, I remember him, especially in his role in uh, World According to Garp. He also towered over Robin Williams in that. Yeah. And there was also that woman who played the Mexican, the wife, uh, the, the, the sister of Agus, was it? Louis Vasquez. Yeah. Maria Ophelia. Mm-hmm. And Maria Ophelia Medina Torres. She was great too. 
She was. And I liked the whole pickup scene that they did with her. Yeah, yeah. Although, as I say, that whole old Tagus plot line never gelled for me. I could never quite figure out what was going on in that at all. I thought it was, for a while there, some sort of nod to, who was that guy that was organizing farm workers in the early 70s? In Chavez? Cesar Chavez? Yeah, and a Cesar Chavez, that's right. I was about to say oh, Hugo Chavez, but that's terrible. No. Yeah, I thought it was him, but it, well, it had nothing to do with that at all. No, I was thinking the same thing. And it's that whole idea of like, let's appeal to the largest voter base by having this Latino guy be the running mate to the white guy trying to woo those voters. And meanwhile, he seems to be missing throughout so much of this. And Lithgow doesn't seem to give a shit about him. He's all about where are these flyers coming from. But then you have to realize that Lithgow's probably lying the entire time because he is somebody else who is trying to get back at his father, basically. So am I wrong? Was he not? Was Luis Vasquez not one of the uh, California Four? He was. He was he one was. of the California Four. And yeah. I didn't get the idea that he was running with so much as just endorsing the kid. Yeah, that's what I thought. That's what I thought. I mean, am I wrong? I could be wrong. It's funny that the campaign would allow for one of the California for Vasquez, who's still working in, uh, you know, leftist politics to endorse their candidate. But they're very concerned about Howard Ethis, the other, you know, member of the California for being being linked to their candidate, which I think is a, a really wonderful kickoff point that they've got this very milquetoast, you know, nominally left of center politician that they they want to get elected and their concerns that the real you know ties to real leftist uh, i mean endorsements are gonna are gonna sink his absolutely sink his chances i'd like that start off point i mean i could be totally wrong because i will admit that the end of this movie is fairly obscure so if he is not his running mate if he's not hawthorne's running mate i will fully accept that because i was pretty confused I mean, because that whole thing about Oscar Precari Sr. having been in Vietnam, too, that's never mentioned at all. But then that's sort of the fulcrum around which that last sort of 15 minutes of the film revolves around is that he was in Vietnam and he brought out this Korean guy. South Korea did fight on the side of the United States in, in Vietnam, so that makes sense. But he brought this guy out to, you know, using him to blow up highway systems to sabotage that nominally leftist candidate from winning the governorship. That all, I couldn't sort of really go through any of that. Couldn't get any of that. It's a little murky and, you know, you got to watch it. Unless you're coasting on vibe. Like I said, the first time I saw this movie, I really, really liked it. And, you know, I've probably watched it five or six times this year, just getting ready for this. And it, it's not one that I would recommend people watch that many times in quick succession. But I think if you've never seen it and you're, you know, you like these, these kinds of uh, things, I think you'd be very pleasantly surprised with uh, a first viewing of the big fix. Full disclosure. It was hard to hear the film over the soundtrack that I had playing in the background. Really? <laughs> you were distracted. <laughs> so I just went back and looked and as who I'm thinking is Vasquez is driving that truck unconscious as hands tied to the steering wheel type of thing. He passes a sign that says Vasquez E. Hawthorne, V. 
Vesca's e prop night. So I'm guessing that he is part of this whole political machine, but or is there a proposition that's going up along with that governorship? It could be that he's supporting Hawthorne or something like. Anyway, yeah, and it's all over his van too. Sometimes you've just got to let art wash over you, and I think this is and vibe wash over you, and I think this, as you say, Jed, this film is is very much a case of that. But there is enough vibe. You know, earlier when I was saying it was a, you know, one of the the kind of humorous ones that I brought up, like Fletch and things like that. I don't. It's not near as overtly comedic as Fletch, but there are a lot of subversions and inversions of the hard-boiled stuff that are are humorous. And Dreyfus is, you know, Moses Wine is not, he's not Mickey Spillane by any means. And, you know, I think to the film's credit, and it's really, it's better that he's not, you know, he's, because he, he is genuinely sweet and, you know, emotionally involved in his kids and his ex-wife. I thought it was cool too that, um, you know, they didn't uh, go in a lot to why they're not together anymore. But, you know, he's not mooning over his ex wife the way detectives in these things usually are. He's really much more interested in his kids. And, but I thought it was a neat touch that, that she was saving his ass by marrying him. You know, it's helping him stay out of Vietnam by being married. I thought, well, that's a, a great little touch because, you you know, they were talking about you, uh, you know, our, our marriage was abandoned and we were pressured into it. You know, my first thought is, oh, she was pregnant and, you know, he had to marry her. I was like, no, she was doing him a favor by marrying him to keep him out of Vietnam. Yeah. And we don't also know why he became a private detective or do we? Well, we sort of do because he sort of fell into it. Remember, he says, look, he took. Someone asked him to do a job, and before he knew what was happening, he was he was process serving and doing divorce cases, and just sort of just sort of fell into it. And even his indebtedness, to your point, Jed, is it's very it's pretty insane. It's a few hundred bucks here. It's, it's, he's not in debt to them all. No one's coming up to him with a nail gun and a baseball bat. You know, it's just that just those money problems he's got, like everything else. It's kind of soft played, and it works. All right, guys, let's go ahead and take a break, and we're going to play a pair of interviews. First up, we'll hear from director Jeremy Kagan, and after that, we'll hear from the author of the Moses Wine books, screenwriter Roger L. Simon, right after these brief messages. Hello, everyone. This is Malcolm McDowell. I just want to say that uh, this is a request to listeners of the Projection Booth podcast to become patrons of the show via patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Projection Booth. That's pretty simple. I think you can do that. It's a great show, and Mike, he provides hours of great entertainment. So now it's time to give back, my little droogies. Settle down and take a listen and have a sip of the old Malocco. And then you'll be ready for a little of the old in-out, in-out, real horror show. Bye-bye. Can you tell me a little bit about you and how you decided to become a filmmaker? 
you know, I was literally just writing about this because the high school that I went to when I was young was a high school called Horace Mann, and it's our 60th reunion. And we decided to uh, just sort of like take a picture of ourselves from now and uh, compare it to what we looked like when we were in our yearbook and write a short bio. And so I was just sort of thinking about myself and, and how I got to where I am. And I must say that, you know, how one does get to where one is, is sometimes through choice and sometimes through being chosen. I feel that's, that's been really true in terms of my own sort of development. I was not a film buff when I was a kid. I mean, I loved animation, and I still do. In fact, I just finished a uh, short animated film literally two days ago. So I'm this, this is a form that I've uh, always loved. But that was it. I didn't know anything about Hollywood or Hollywood directors, or I never heard of any of them. And really, it was, it was not my interest. But when I was at college, I ended up writing my thesis about Sergei Eisenstein, who was this absolutely encyclopedic genius of film, whose works like uh, The Battleship of Chumkin are regarded as some of the greatest films that ever made. And as I was learning about him and filmmaking, and particularly filmmaking as a way of changing people's awareness and potentially changing behavior, I got very, very excited. And also, I was growing up in a time when particularly European cinema was coming to America. And you were seeing some of these sort of very vitalized and political filmmakers from all around the world, even though entertaining someone is hard enough, they were able to do it and also have some kind of content. And so I got inspired by this. And I decided I'd go to graduate school and study film with possibly the intention of becoming sort of an educator, a specialist on filmmaking to be able to use filmmaking well. So, you know, I ended up, you know, going to grad school. I went to NYU and there at NYU, this is a, I suddenly realized how much I love the actual doing of it. The physical touching of film, by the way, which is something we don't do anymore. But, they, you know, uh, late at night actually working these machines. In fact, Steven Spielberg's most recent movie sort of shows you some of that equipment. And it was um, very tactile. Um, and I got totally stimulated. And the first film I made was a little animated film that won Best Student Animated Film uh, that particular year. And I just sort of, I guess I got the infection of creativity. And I'm a writer, I'm a graphic artist, I direct the theater, I played as an actor, I'm a musician, and film puts all of this together. So it just felt like, wow, what a way to sort of occupy one's time. And I then got into the American Film Institute, which um, started in 1969. I was with the first group of fellows. There were just 12 of us. Some of them were very famous, like Terry Malick and and then David Lynch, but uh, it was a small group, and it was the right timing. Hollywood was looking for younger filmmakers because new movies like uh, Easy Rider had suddenly become incredibly successful that they thought were sort of C movies that would play like in a, you know in a, on a drive-in and that be it, and they were giant hits, but they didn't have anybody who knew how to make these things. So they looked to us at the American Film Institute. We were here in Los Angeles, and I was fortunate enough to have People like Frank Pearson, brilliant writer, director, did a dog day afternoon. And Frank sort of took me on and uh, as a mentor and gave me my very first job directing a television series. And, you know, here I am, 12 features later, Emmy Awards, uh, you know, 20 TV movies, episodes of television winning, uh, you know, for directing episodic TV. 
becoming a professor at the School of Cinematic Arts at uh, USC, one of the best film schools in the world, and writing about film and doing what you do, actually, which I enjoy enormously. I, I'm chairperson of what's called Special Projects at the Directors Guild that was created by Robert Wise and Larry Kazan. And what, among other things we do is we put together in-depth interviews with directors. We have over 250 of them right now on our DGA.org website. And every year I get to interview, I've done this now, I don't know, I think it's 32 years now, the nominees for best directors. And I've written three books based on this called Directors Close-Up. So I've had this incredible experience of being able to, like you, ask questions of other filmmakers of how they do what they do. So before you did The Big Fix and the Heroes, before you started directing features, as you mentioned, you directed TV. I'm a huge Columbo fan. Could you tell me about shooting the most crucial game? This was, I think, it's the second season of Columbo, or maybe the end of the first. I'm not quite sure which. And I got this opportunity. This is my third professional job. And one of the things that was sort of bizarre was they told us that you had 10 days to make these I was the only person in the history of making of these movies, the Colombo, that actually did it in 10 days. Because I thought, that's all you had. I didn't know you could go over to tell you 10 days to make something you make in 10 days. But one of the things that was fabulous, it was coming from sort of a film school orientation. I designed a whole bunch of shots that the professional filmmakers didn't quite know how to do them. And I suggested, well, because like, for example, a dolly shot. And I said, let's get a, just a wheelchair. What? A wheelchair? We'll put you in the camera in the wheelchair. We'll push the wheelchair. They'd never done anything like that before because they had dollies, all these cranes and all the rest. But, you know, when you're in film school, a wheelchair is your dolly if you can move it at all. And I, I still remember the guy who was the cameraman, sort of like, just his face was kind of lighting up because it was all sort of new and fresh. And I also remember how innocent and naive I was. Uh, Peter Falk, who I later became friends with because John Cassavetes became one of my mentors. Peter was having financial issues with the studio. And I didn't know anything about this. And because the show is such a hit, he, I think, wanted more money. And so all of a sudden on day four or five or six, he isn't coming out of his trailer. I don't know what's going on. So I go over and knock on the trailer and say, Peter, are you all right? And Peter opens the door and he looks at me and he realizes, I have no idea what's going on, that all I care about is making good a film as we could. And this smile creeps on his face and he says, ah, I'll be in the set in a couple minutes. And, you know, he was there, you know, just playing, which was, you know, I guess not knowing the rules and the game and just being caring about, you know, how much fun we can all have and how we can make something good was sort of my attitude toward that. So it was, uh, and I do remember the experience and we did things like you could never do now. I remember uh, there was a moment when, <laughs> when the, the villain in this character, I decided he was going to get in this ice cream truck and yes. skate. We actually got on a freeway and we sort of stole the shot. You could have never done that now. Oh, it's impossible. But now times change. <laughs> Yeah, Robert Culp, one of the best Columbo yeah. villains, and that guy just seeds the whole time. Yeah, what a fabulous guy. And I remember he was reading these books about what would now be called AI stuff. He was totally into sort of the future of technologies. And so in between takes, I'd watch him looking at these books that were quite dense about where we were going to head. And looks like he was right. <laughs> 
when you're working on a an, on an episodic show like that, well, they're kind of not episodic because they're really more TV movies, individual yeah. movies, and them themselves. Are you part of the casting process, or is that already set before you even step on to the soundstage? It's a good question, and the process has changed over the years. Obviously, Peter was there. Culp, I'm pretty sure Universal had already asked him to do it. I don't think I had anything to do with that. But all the other cast, all the other characters in the piece, those were regular casting sessions. And I believe very, very firmly that, in fact, the director needs to be the person who is going to sort of make the final decisions in terms of who's going to be in the cast. Because... The one responsibility the director has that nobody else has on a filmmaking set is to help the actors give the best performances they can give. There's nobody else there. I mean, if you want design, you got great production designers. If you want, you know, terrific editing, you got great editors. You got, you know, great cinematographers. They could hopefully see better and will record the sound better if the sound man than you. But the one thing that you do and the one responsibility that you have is getting a performance. And so, therefore, casting, which is such an important part of that, should be and often is the responsibility of the director. Things have changed now because casting used to be almost all in person. Now, so many of the pieces that we do are cast because someone sends in a tape. But them in person is a, a vital part of the process that you need to do. And I remember on this particular movie, this is a, this is not even that again. Yeah. Casting this particular girl, uh, that's John Cusack over there, and Meredith Salinger, who you know had never done anything before. And, and I remember what was so powerful is the person who ran Disney, because they are the people that actually made that movie. They said in the end, there were three actresses, and they were all very good. But I knew which one, after we did a screen test, which we did a full screen test, which one of these actresses would be, I think, the best one to play the part. And I didn't have the support of a lot of the junior executives of the studio, and even my producer at the time was like, well, maybe we should go for the more classic Disney-looking you know, actress. And I remember the studio executive said, who do you want? And I said, I want Meredith Salinger. And I said, this is the person I think will give the best performance. And I remember the studio executive said, well, you're responsible for getting the best performance. If that's the actress you want, that's the actress we'll use. Quite exceptional, actually. That's a really positive story, of which I'm sure there are lots of other directors who can tell you just the opposite. I've always wondered because Val Avery shows up in the episode that you directed. And that's pure because I knew Val through John Casamettis. Okay, because I know like he shows up in a bunch of Columbo episodes, and I wasn't sure if that was just like, kind of, hey, do me a favor, or what it was. John had his own sort of body of actors that worked with him, is and um, you know besides Benny Ben Gazzara and, and obviously Peter Falk and Val Avery was one of them. In fact, I used in my first feature, I used Val in that, and I used him in another movie as well, and a number of other actors that John had used because John worked with great actors, and so I was lucky enough to know them and meet them and. At home. These are oftentimes parts that the studio isn't concerned with because they're concerned with what, how they're going to advertise something. And these are you know, these are not the characters that are people are going to go to see the movie. Yeah, I remember Val had a fabulous language of his own, and I remember at one time he said some line I heard him say, and I immediately put it in the the, the first feature I did, Heroes, where he said, you know, something like, "I'm going to eat your liver," and I said, oh, "Okay." I think we'll use that line. That's a good one. 
Also, Robert Culp got to kill a very young Dean Stockwell in that uh, movie. Right. Well, opening sequence, I was actually just thinking about, about that because it, at this Columbo ran a week ago or two weeks ago, and I accidentally saw that it was running. And I looked at that opening sequence and think, ah, I want to shoot it in another way. Was Valerie Harper, was she already a no quantity at that point when you had her as the prostitute? No, she was a, you know one of the working actors. And it's so kind of fascinating because I don't think either of us remembered when I directed her in Golda's Balcony, which she was this one-woman show. that She did such an amazing job. And then the film version of it, which I think is actually quite good, but she's fabulous. But we didn't remember working together. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that happens. So how did you make that transition from TV projects into feature films? How was that for you? It was, again, this is sort of the, you know, I think about people's careers as you've got to have talent. You really do have to have talent. But you also have to have perseverance and you have to have a kind of ambition. And then you have to have luck. Luck may be timing. It also may be recognizing a door is opening and stepping in rather than not stepping in. In the case of my first feature, and there were a couple of opportunities before then, which are scripts that I read and I had no interest whatsoever, but I had I directed a TV movie called Unwed Father with Joseph Bottoms and Kay Lenz, and the producer on that was Larry Terman, who was a partner with a guy named David Foster, and Larry was very, very impressed with the work that I'd done. He also kind of knew me as a, a mentee at the American Film Institute as well. Then I had written and directed a movie that's one of my better movies called Catherine, which is a, as Abby Hoffman said, the best movie made about the 60s, which was uh, loosely based on uh, members of what was called the Weather Underground. These were people who thought that inevitably that the only way to change the system was, in fact, to literally eliminate it, in, even potentially violently. And this was a really powerful piece, Sissy Spacek's second movie. Art Carney was in it playing her dad. And that movie got a lot of attention. And I cast this actor named Henry Winkler to play the boyfriend of the character, Catherine. And Henry had such a good time working on this thing. And he was really just energized. He was already getting famous as the Fonz, but this was really meaningful to him. And since he was getting famous as the Fonz, and I had just also done after this a movie about Scott Joplin with Billy Dee Williams. This was a television movie about Scott Joplin, and it got released as a feature because Universal, the studio, liked it so much, and it won, uh, played in film festivals. I didn't know, by the way, about any of this. They didn't tell me. But what happens is here's Henry Winkler, who really likes this director. Here's these producers who really like this director. And here's this studio who also liked this director. And so I was given the opportunity to direct my first feature with Henry Winkler as the star and um, Larry Terman and David Foster, the producers, and Universal as the studio. And that's, you know, began my feature career. And again, in my naivete, what I was interested in was making a movie about return veterans. I was interested in the, what now is, you know, PSD issue, but that word, that phrase didn't even exist, but that's what I wanted to make this film about. It was, you know, a good film about that issue. Very powerful, actually, and funny. And what I didn't know, because all I was interested in was sort of like it getting its sort of good reviews, and it got okay reviews, but it was the second highest money winner 
for Universal. I didn't know that. I don't read the trades. I didn't look at these double pages which said how much money this movie made. So now I was part of the Universal family of this guy makes us money. And that's, in fact, how, in, in essence, the fix happened with uh, Richard Dreyfus, because Universal was, they liked this guy. He made a movie that made us a lot of money. And the other part was Richard had seen another television movie I did. It's so interesting just in terms of what's been going on in terms of the, just <laughs> the Oscars the other night, was that I made a movie called Judge D, uh, which based on a re- character in the 7th century Tang dynasty in China, and someone named Van Gulick who'd written a whole bunch of detective stories, like um, Sherlock Holmes kind of stories, and I was asked to direct this, <laughs> and I, I did, and it was with a, I demanded, and the studio was not happy, or uh, the, the network, but I said, there has to be an all-Asian cast, we can't do this thing with bullet eyes back, you know, that's just not going to work, and interesting, James Hung who is now 91 years old, was one of the actors in this particular movie. So, uh, of course, different times, by the way. If you think I don't think I could have made at this moment or would have been hired as the director for either a movie about an all-Asian cast or a movie about a black African-American musician. I'm not the right look. Yeah, I just watched Judge D. Uh, probably about two months ago, I spoke with Nicholas oh, Meyer. Yeah, that was Nick's first professional job. I yeah to do it. It was interesting too because Richard Dreyfus, like you, had seen it on some like you know on TV, like at midnight somewhere, and had really liked it. And when I first met him, that was one of the things that Richard talked about with his partner Carl Borak, who were the people who produced uh, that. And it was, I mean, it was first of all, I was, I was shocked that he'd seen it. <laughs> And secondly, that he'd actually liked it. And so that led to, you know, to us working on this movie. Yeah, I really wish there had been more Judge D's, but then your lead actor, he ended up passing away, right? Hi, D. No, he lived for a while after that. Sure. But what was interesting was that I didn't realize that the network had wanted to make a series. I thought this was a one-shot TV movie might have cast it differently because Kaidi is such a bizarre guy. He's an overweight guy, and I thought it was both funny and weird. And I didn't realize that they really wanted a kung fu movie um, as of David Carradine's success in, in, in that particular series, and this was going to be something like that. I didn't know. Again, naive. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me the origins of The Big Fix. Where was the project at when you came aboard, or were you the one to originate it? No, no. Roger Simon had created, I think this was the first of a series of novels that he created of this particular character, uh, Moses Wine, that Richard played. So Roger had written that, and I think both Richard and Carl, Borak, his partner, had you know optioned the book and sold it to Universal or made a deal with Universal, and that's how it all happened. So I came on as the director, but not as the initiator of this. I mean, I did a number of, as old directors do, I worked with Roger on a number of ways to sort of shift some of the parts of the story and provide new scenes and stuff like that. But, you know, it was definitely his property and his creation. This is his character. How was it working with a writer who also wrote the book? Roger was very, very, you know, I've worked with lots of different kinds of writers and some brilliant writers. And some writers, you know, really do get very defensive about their words. I often think that they should be then the director of them. Because movies are evolutionary. You make a movie four times. You make a movie once it's written. You make a movie once it's cast. You make a movie once you actually shoot it. 
because that changes too. And then you make a movie in the post-production editing phase. And that's four different movies, and they are all different. So when the writer understands that this is an evolutionary process, the writer can be absolutely invaluable to have with you. When the writer thinks, this is mine, and you're supposed to realize just what I have created, then that can be a difficult situation. Roger was easy and cooperative and fun and and got sometimes where, oh, you're doing this differently than I thought this was going to be, but it's working. It was a good relationship at the time. It feels like there's such a through line between Catherine and then Heroes and then the big fix where it just it's this kind of like radical response to Vietnam, but it doesn't fit the pattern if you're brought in afterwards. Like if you originated that, or is this just like a happenstance? No, I think this is more also a similarity of caring. In other words, the vitality and sort of faith and outrageousness of a particular time that said change is necessary and change is possible. That meant social justice. That meant ending wars. It meant a new group of leadership. And so I was part of that as a young person when I was in New York and then even as I was finishing Harvard at the, you know, it was the 68, 69, 70, this is all happening. And so that was part of who, and still is part of who I am. And so these movies in many ways were a expression of that time. So I was very fortunate to be able to, you know, I think that's why I was asked to write and direct Catherine because of what I knew about this world. I mean, I think there's no question that Richard and Carl knew from seeing, you know, the heroes and Catherine that that's just where my heart and mind and soul were. And then adding to that, you know, it, it just has continued. You know, I mean, the reason why this movie conspiracy happened, the trial of Chicago 8, was because of Catherine, because CBS had seen that. It had become a, a sort of a cause celeb because. Initially, it was going to be broadcast, and then because they thought it was too radical, New York decided they were going to just shelve the movie. And then there was a a large article in the New York Magazine about censorship, talking about this particular film, Catherine, and they put it on the air. And then they came to me a number of years later and said, would you do this piece about the Chicago conspiracy trial? And I said, yes. And when I wrote what I wrote, they too when they finally looked at it and said, this is too radical, we can't do it. And I had I had an amazing cast. I mean, Dustin Hoffman was interested in playing Judge Hoffman. I mean, we had sort of, Jersey Scott was interested in playing one of the prosecuting attorneys. It was like amazing group of people. They still didn't want to do it. So, okay, I had the experience and met the people. It was incredible to sort of spend time with Abby Hoffman and spend time with, with this group, Dave Dellinger and this group of people and Tom Aiden and learn from them and I just felt, you know, that was a great experience. Move on. And then a number of years later, there was an article, a TV guide that was about the best movies that didn't get made or the best scripts. And the first one that this writer chose, how they even knew about it, was mine. And HBO had just started. And HBO came to me and said, you know, we want to do this. And I said, okay, but I want to do it in a sort of a different way than you would necessarily think about. And, you know, and I was willing for them to say no, but they were open enough to go through what is an experimental movie. And if you compare this movie to the movie that was made a couple of years ago, I think you will find this movie is a deeper experience of what that trial and what that time was like. And more specifically, of course, it's also 
accurate, whereas the other one is a more of a, a narrative. Good narrative, but not the in, it's a long answer to the idea that this issue of justice and equality and the ability to be free in expression has been part of who I am, how I grew up, and I've been lucky enough to make a number of movies that have to do with this. I'm about to direct a play that's about freedom of expression based on a, another trial, kind of famous trial of a if you were into punk rock, then the dead Kennedys, you'll know about the Biafra trial. And so, and, and again, it's all about freedom of expression. So I'm in a continuity of, of work that I'm, I'm lucky enough to uh, be told. That's fantastic. I was very into punk rock when I was younger. So hearing that really makes me happy. Oh, listen, you're going to like this. It's really good. In fact, there's a great sequence. I'm just working on it now with the playwright. <laughs> you know, because when you listen to this music, you can't understand any of the words because, you know, it's right. Which is too bad because Jello Biafro is a terrific sort of political poet. I mean, he really is. He's kind of a Bob Dylan-ish early in punk rock with the right things to say about who we are and, and the corruption of the, you know, uh, of, let's say the over-wealthy. And it's all in his words, but <laughs> you can't hear him. And so that's one of the, we're dealing with that particular scene right now with uh, his wife, Teresa, and talking about, you got something to say, but is anybody really getting it? Right, right, right. <laughs> I don't expect you as a director to keep up on these things, but it took me forever to find Conspiracy, the trial of the Chicago 8. Is it easier to find these days than it was? There's a very, very bad stolen version on YouTube. So you can get to see it, but it's, you know, it's, it's what it is. It got caught in a sort of changes in HBO and distribution, which happens to movies, but it can be found and you can get DVDs of it. It's not cheap anymore, but it can be there. Actually, it, I'll tell you where it actually exists for anybody is on Vimeo. I've been conspiracy, the trial of Chicago. You don't even have to pay $1.99. You can see. It. So, yeah. And a very, very good, you know, copy of it. So it, it's there, but no, obviously not. Now maybe some people who see this will or hear this will say, oh, good, uh, I can see that on Vimeo for free. You talked a little bit before about the value of casting and the cast of, well, so many of your movies, but especially The Big Fix. It's just incredible. And so great to even see just little young Mandy Patinkin in one of his first roles. In fact, I was just about to Mandy tomorrow. Yeah, that was a wonderful casting moment for us. Uh, Richard and I and Carl were in New York casting. Uh, the Feast is an L.A. movie. It's Los Angeles. I mean, that's one of the, the most valuable parts of this movie are it really exposed a lot of Los Angeles that people just didn't know about. So we went everywhere because he was a local L.A. detective. Uh, what I loved about what Roger had created, though, was a detective who had relationships. All the famous detectives that we all know about are loners. Philip Marlowe was a loner. You know, the Chandler created loners. These were, you know, these famous detectives on their own, you know. Not this character. This guy's got an ex-wife. He's got another girlfriend. He's got an aunt. That he's got two kids to take care of. And it's just he's got he's carrying the weight of, of all of us. And so I thought that was really sort of fun. And so we're now in and new what Roger had created. We're in New York, and and an actor comes in. He's got a big black beard. He said, and he's apparently was up in the mountains in New England somewhere. And he comes in, and you know we talk to him. Fabulous character, fascinating guy. And then, you know, do a little read for this part. And he's amazing. But he's way too young. 
And so, and in fact, John Lithgow ended up, who actually I went to school with at, at Harvard. But John was the superstar. I mean, he was the best actor and, and, and a theater director at Harvard in my years that I was there. You know, I knew him, but didn't know him well. And I cast him in this. Again, it was his first movies. And what happened was that we both said to Richard, said, this guy's so good. And I said to Mandy, he said, look, Mandy, you know, you're too young for this part. But I'll tell you, if you're in Los Angeles while we were shooting, we'll put you in the movie. Well, it turned out he was. And there was this, this moment when, you know, <laughs> she said, I was shooting a scene kind of loosely based on Abby Hoffman character that F. Murray Abraham was playing. And Mandy came to that set and I, I came up with this idea of, why don't you be the, the pool man? And as Richard's coming to the thing, and they'll have a, and Mandy kind of wrote the little bit of a, a scene on his own. And it's very funny and it's very sort of a bit of humor before something else happens. And what's wonderful about all of this is Mandy met his wife on this movie, Brody. Mandy and Marie Abraham, you know, have become friends and work together brilliantly on these TV shows, which we open their own people all, all have seen Homeland. And it's sort of great that the weave of how people's lives intersect. I laughed out loud a little bit when you first show F. Marie Abraham and he's got that huge afro wig. <laughs> yeah. He looked he looked so great and oh man, I always love him and anything he shows up in. I was lucky enough to Work with him on another piece called Color of Justice. And he's, I mean, he's just an amazing talent. You know, what you're always looking for, whether it's in a comedy or in a drama, is truth that you actually believe this person. And, you know, you just do with him. And it's a deep gift of honesty that he has, that he brings to every performance he gives, which is, you know, very exciting. So can you tell me a little bit more about the making of The Big Fix? I mean, what were some of your big challenges? What were some of the fun things to do? One of the things was, as I mentioned, was discovering Los Angeles. And, you know, L.A. is like a city that a monster stepped on it and squished it and it's gone in every direction. And most of us just stay sort of where we're living or where we're working. And to discover Los Angeles, even today to discover Los Angeles and its variety, was what this experience was for me. And I lived in the sort of Hollywood Hills area. I hardly ever went to the ocean. We went to the ocean. We shot scenes uh, you know, on the beach. We shot scenes in what's called the canals, which were at that time a dump zone and now are one of the most expensive places to live in Los Angeles. We shot scenes in e Boyle Heights in East LA, which is a certain you know, area that was, you know, at the time, uh, uh, I guess the phrase would have been, no, but Latinx will do for now. And so to discover all of that was great. But I remember we, we were shooting a particular scene. Again, the kind of thing that it's a mix of, and I, some of my, the styles of my movies have this in them, which is a mix of what you call it, a documentary style, meaning you're right there doing it and whatever the drama is. And there was this fabulous uh, Mercado, which no longer exists, but it was a big, big place. And we went there and we kind of shot this rather complicated scene where everybody was just there eating and then doing marketing and all the rest. And we're running around with a handheld camera, probably big one, it's 35 millimeter. It's not like a digital camera, but nobody's really paying any attention. <laughs> and, and I just remember the sequence is a terrific sequence of the movie because it also feels incredibly real um, because these people were there and, and doing it their own lives, and we were sort of intersecting with them, which can be a very, very strong and powerful way of, uh, of telling a story. 
and make it again more believable. So I'm trying to think if there's other things that come up. Her first name is Rita, who played his aunt, and she 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 has a good Yiddish accent that she has. A, it's part of who she is, and I just the scenes when she starts to rag on her nephew, which is Richard Dreyfus. Just I mean, I'd start laughing because they were just so delicious. You know, it's like having somebody going, "Yeah, uh-huh, yeah, yeah, you're a pain." You know what I'm saying? You just can't do this stuff. I don't know why you do it. I, you know, and then you what? And the, and I just I thought she was absolutely wonderful. So I'm remembering the fun of doing that. I also remember setting up a shot that no one had done before, which now is a shot that everybody does. He had a broken down Volkswagen, the character Moses Wine, and we put it on a, a low trailer. And I wanted to do a shot that moved around sort of almost 270 degrees. Well, in those days, we didn't have the kind of you know, cranes and um, that we have now that can do all this kind of stuff and car trucks that'll you know have these things on them. Those days, you couldn't. So we put this rail about track on this flatbed, and the camera made its move as these two characters, uh, Susan Ansbach and Richard Dreyfus, were having this sort of confrontation inside the car, and that was sort of like that shift of power from him to the power of her, because she's sort of chastising him on the way he's behaving and, and then the life he's leading. And it, of course, it, it sort of like, visually, it shifted the power, but it was really, you know, and it's not really noticeable, but it was like a big deal, because at that time, wow, we, we pulled this off. Nowadays, of course, it's, you know, it's second nature. But then, then, so I'm remembering that. I also remember another moment. There's a moment, and this refers to what we've been talking about, where this character, who also was active in the 60s, but no longer is, because he, he's just doing, you know, private investigator work that's so, you know, just the yes work. And he, he goes to a video place because he's trying to track down this character that's sort of like a, you know, Howard Eppis is the name, sort of like Abby Hoffman underground. And he's tracking it down. He's looking at all these videos on multiple screens, also multiple screens, think about that, of what was happening, the marches, the protests, and all the rest. And I remember when we shot that, and Richard didn't know what I had prepped for him. And he's looking at it for the first time, and he starts to break. Because, you know, that was a time in which a difference was being made. And that time is past. That doesn't mean a new time can't come where you know, we will maybe save the planet from destruction by us. But the point is that that moment was so real for him. And I, was, again, I hadn't shown it to him until he was actually there in that room with his monitors watching the past. And uh, he was deeply moved. I remember that scene a lot. I remember something else, too, which was, there was an actor who was a friend of Richard's name, uh, Larry Bishop. And Larry plays this sort of FBI guy. And we were shooting in a real location in a hotel room and, uh, where this character, Moses Wine, and Richard Dreyfus is being interrogated. And the room had a bunch of mirrors in it. I didn't ask for them. It just did. And I sort of discovered that the character that Richard was playing could be trapped visually by all these other people surrounding him, both in the present and in the mirrors. And and there, there's, there's this great line that it, for those of people who are into lines, like uh, I did this movie called Big Man on Campus, and, and there's a the character's name 
is Maluka, 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 Maluka. And it, it became an underground uh, uh, sort of joke for people who would, uh, back when that movie was uh, was put out. But here, this character's name was Howard Eppis, and th- that they want to find. And Larry kept saying, do you know Howard Eppis? Where is Howard Eppis? <laughs> I just... The, the scene is a, of a favorite of mine in the movie because Larry was fabulous in it, but he had also he just visually it had a cinematic quality to it, even though it was a standard interrogation scene, but it got another level. There's so many great moments in that movie, and had you told me that the whole thing with his wrist, like I thought for sure that that was not a real thing. But then that he actually had, I mean, because you working into the script so well. And was it would happen two weeks before we were starting to shoot the movie? Richard broke his arm, and his arm was in a cast. So the thing was, when was the cast going to come off? And the cast would come off in about two months. But I remember the head of the studio, or the second head of the studio, telling me. Now I made this feature before the heroes had made a lot of money, and now that you're going to make this one, and I remember him saying to me, you know. I don't know if this movie, The Big Fix, is going to make us any money, but I really want to make it. Now, that's quite a statement. So I realized, having heard that from this guy, that if we decided to postpone for two months, they'd cancel it. So I said to Richard and to Roger Sunderman, writer, let's find a way to use it. And the four of us with Carl there, too, were somewhat bouncing back and forth, three of us back, what what do we think? Uh... How about he uses tells a bunch of lies about how it happened, and then maybe we can make it really pay off, like it really happened because of you know him playing with his kids. So Roger immediately went, yeah, and then wrote these fabulous responses. So you know, you know, I was a cop and got beat up by cops. I was, you know, you just various stories, all having sort of political ends, and then our movie ends with him getting on this skateboard. And going over the hill, the skateboard, his kids saying, don't blame me if it happens again. And we hear a crash. Now we know, oh, obviously, that's how he broke his arm. And if, if we had not done that, that movie would not have been made. And again, this is like, who's determining how these things are happening? Yeah, we took an aggressive attitude about, let's figure out a way to use it. And it's very funny, and it really works. And, and you know, we would have never, you know, Roger wouldn't have created that. I wouldn't have thought, oh, let's pretend this guy's got a broken on arm. What? No, of course not. But there it was, and it was real. And <laughs> so we were just able to play it off. I remember there was, there was this one moment when um, uh, P.T. Anderson called me. and I knew him from, well, I've known him because I was uh, artistic director up at the Sundance Lab for a while. So I've, you know, I had that experience and he was up there at that time. And we stayed vaguely in touch. And he wanted to see the big fix because of the, you know, private eye 60s-ish movie that he made. Now, it's your turn to tell me, oh, well, the original version was actually three hours long and there's all these things that you didn't see. Or is that not the case at all? No, it's not one of those. We didn't have that kind of luxury. This was, you know, you had a certain amount of money and a certain amount of time, and that's where we were. You know, as I think about my movies, you know, I don't think there are very many scenes that, that we would say are on the editing room floor. It's just still on the editing room floor. We'll say in the digital files that you don't see. It just not happened. It happened once in The Chosen, which was made in a very short time. That You know, that movie, this was a movie that, there was one scene in that movie where, in fact, you know, we shot it and it ended up dropped. 
you know, it's not in the big fix and certainly not in almost everything I've made. We've shot and used what we've gotten. Many of our scenes have been shortened or whatever, but that, but nothing like, well, we're going to drop this. I often asked other directors, you know, what scenes isn't in the movie. And, you know, it's sort of fascinating to hear the reasons where the filmmaker thought this was working. And then when they were screening it for other people, they could just feel that it was over here and didn't need to be in it to tell the story. But, you know, you have to learn that. Oftentimes, we're too close to the material to recognize what's of the most value and what doesn't need to be there. Well, that said, what's your relationship with your editors usually? Well, I've been very fortunate to work with some wonderful editors who have sometimes chased me out of the editing room smartly because I've gotten a little bit too sort of stuck on what I, that moment of shooting and not recognize that, yeah, that was really good on the set and that's a really good scene itself. But now we're in the editing room and there's another need for it. One of my best experiences I had was, was an editor named David Holland who cut The Journey of Natty again. He cut a couple other things for me as well. But I remember what was wonderful is he was cutting, as other editors do this as well, and directors, he was cutting while we were shooting. We were shooting actually out of the country. I think we were the second American film to be shot in uh, northern Canada, in, uh, British Columbia, in Calgary. And he would phone me and say, we need a shot of this. Or And instead of sort of, oh, well, yeah, send me the edited version, let me say, which you couldn't do then because it wasn't you know, like it is now. I was like very fortunate to be able to get that advice and then to do what was being suggested and it made a difference in terms of the edit. So that's a wonderful relationship where the editor is a storyteller and David's actually a good writer. They're editors who are essentially wonderful functional editors, meaning they know how to edit something, really put it together and make it work. But they're not necessarily looking at the whole and being whole storytellers and recognizing the value of the performance here, the need for emphasis here. And when you get that kind of editor, you're in a phenomenally good situation because they too, like the writer, are into let's tell the story as well as we can. And these are the things that you might even need while you're shooting. So I've been, I've been. And I'd like my question about Judge D. Was there ever talk of doing another Moses Wine movie? You know, I think there has been over the years because uh, Roger wrote at least another one or two, maybe more Moses Wine stories, but I guess it never clicked. I have to tell you, so I've seen The Chosen, but where I saw it, I saw it actually in one of my high school religion classes. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> They're just not easy, but I get it. <laughs> yeah, it was fantastic. And it was I grew up in a super waspy area, so it was like the first time anybody had seen Jews portrayed on film, I think. It was just like, yeah, who are these weird people with the talus and the you know, yarmulkes and everything? But I loved it. I loved it. It's such a great, great story. Such a great movie. So it's this phenomenal book, and it was a, a really... It actually, I've asked a lot of directors this question too. Has your movie changed you in any, any way? In fact, I asked uh, just recently to the, all the nominees for uh, Best Director this year. Uh, and it was interesting to sort of hear how they've changed, particularly the ones who just won the award, saying that they, they never expected anything to happen and now their lives are changed forever. Um, so, a big change. But this movie changed my life because I grew up with almost secular Judaism and I didn't know anything about the Orthodox communities or the Hasidic movement. So I knew sort of very, very little about the depths of this particular uh, culture and Jewish spiritualism 
didn't know anything about it. And when I did my research to find out who are these people, who are these Hasidim, what does it mean? Or they're pious. What is this? And what is this that they wear? Why do they have that? And to learn that, well, it says in the Torah, you don't cut your hair. So somebody says that inside your hair, you don't cut. Okay, so I got that. It's just there. If you're going to take this as, as some instructions of, of behavior, okay, it's there. But I didn't know anything about sort of the depth of what I'll call mystical, spiritual, both knowledge, meditative exercise, connection to higher consciousness. I didn't know anything about any of this. And this movie, because like with any movie, which is one of the gifts of movies, you get to research. And so I spent a good deal of time in various Hasidic communities in Brooklyn and also in upstate New York. And I began to sort of get exposed to this and it's changed my life because I'm I'm a daily practitioner of meditative exercises from a rabbi teacher of mine named Rabbi Steve Robbins. So none of that would have happened. I'm a graphic artist and I do drawings every week. I'm just finishing this week's drawing. These drawings are each a reflection of a reading that happens every week. Every week there's a reading from Torah or what's called the Haftorah. Torah. These are the basic books of Judaism. And I then respond to it in terms of, uh, of doing these drawings. And I've done hundreds of them. And I do you know, one a week. And in fact, I'm just finishing this week's. Actually, there happen to be two that have to be over this week's because two sections are being read. But I wouldn't have done any of this. This would have never been part of my life, uh, my creativity. Uh, I've made an, an animated movie about these drawings. All of this came because of making that movie. So it, making that movie changed my life, and I'm very, very grateful. You think your spiritualism affected what went on when you had your near-death experience? Yes, I do. And my near-death experience was truly a gift. This was totally unexpected. I was doing sweat lodge work, not drug-induced sweat lodge, not you know, no substances. This was just getting into the heat. And uh, it would happen to be a very, very cold day here in LA. It was up in Malibu where there was a sweat lodge up in the Franklin Wright Estate. And I'd gone in and I don't particularly like the heat. You know, you know, it's very, very hot. And the idea is to the heat forces you to be honest if you speak at all. And there's a ritual that comes from the Lakota people that we're allowed non-indigenous people were allowed to still practice and you say prayers for yourself. You say prayers for your others. You a silent section as well. And I remember, well, of course, I remember well, as I got out, and you're, you, you are naked inside there because it's you know, you're just trying to be honest and expose all those totally black so you can't see anybody. But as, you, as I came out um, into the cold from the heat, I fell to the ground and lost total control of my body, lost uh, vision, lost ear, uh, you know, hearing, and then realized as that I was dying. And it was a form of hypothermia. I'm sure in terms of real time, it was very short, but in terms of the time of, of super consciousness, it was extremely long. And I went through something I'd never even heard of called a near-death experience, which then I wrote this book um, called My Death, Personal Guidebook, and illustrated with about you know, 100 drawings. This is sort of like this, this drawing over here is having come back and realized at a particular moment when I finally sort of did return that how much I felt in love with everybody and everything everywhere. 
<laughs> a little bit different from from that title, but that's what I felt. Unfortunately, it didn't last all that long. The point was at that moment I realized that in fact that was that was a truth. You can actually be in incredible appreciation for everything that's happening all the time. It's all this amazing wonder. You know, there's a great line that I heard the other day, and it really hit me. Yeah, a young genius Hasidic kid. This is this is centuries ago. There's a, you know there, there's different Hasidic groups that are named after cities. Lubavitch is very famous. That's the Chabad group that some people have heard of. Uh, but there's lots of others, and the Bobals and the Vishnitsa. These are all you know Hasidic groups. And there's one called the Ger. And apparently the this young boy who was part of the dynasty of uh, going to be a Rebbe, going to be the head of that community, but he was a young boy. Is asked one of his rabbi teachers saying, "I'll give you," says the rabbi teacher, "I'll give you a kopeck if you can tell me where God is." The little boy looked up at him and said, "I'll give you two kopecks if you can tell me where God isn't." You're about to have your sixtieth high school reunion. It doesn't seem like you're slowing down at all. I didn't ask for this gift. I got it. I'm an energetic human being always have been and still am and without whatever you know physical stuff that comes with the added numbers to your time here on this planet it has not interfered with my either enthusiasm for life and for creativity or my capacity i mean i teach students as a you know a full tenure professor at uh, at school cinematic arts at usc and i teach students and oftentimes i'm feeling like where's your energy where's your you know Where's that passion? You know, because you, I think you want to have it for life, but also for this kind of work, you need to have that. That goes with the perseverance and to some degree the ambition and certainly accompanies the talent. So for me, I'm very fortunate. And I think one of the things that has made a difference is that I do spend a lot of time with young people. So maybe picking up on their openness and excitedness about learning and creativity. So there's that, I think it's, uh, there may be a shared kind of influence on each other that I'm picking up their potentials that allow me to still have mine. So Professor Kagan is somebody who has interviewed just a, a ton of directors and have done so much work for the DGA. How'd I do? This is pretty good. You have been doing wonderfully. Thank you. you. <laughs> oh, about me, which is great. You have enjoyed some of my films, which is terrific. And you're asking questions that I can at least be responsive to. Now, I'm going to ask you, having done 650 or 40 of these, how am I doing? Oh, you're great. This is wonderful. I think we're good. You've told me so much about the big fix, about so many parts of your, your career, some great, great, great stories. Yeah. Is there anything I can do for you as far as like, is there a website or anything that you need to promote or anything that, uh, I think in my email, there are actually the three websites that are worth, you know, putting on. I don't know how you distribute, but they're on my email. One is called the, the Near Death and Life of Jeremy Kagan. That's about this near death experience, but it's also all about my career. It has clips from my movies and all the rest. So it's a nice way of knowing a little bit more about this guy and seeing what he's done. 
The other one that I is called the conspiracy. I can't remember exactly the title of it because it says it says something about conspiracy. The trial of Chicago Eight, the unofficial official story or uh, official unofficial. Why I think that's about you know, not only first of all can you get a link immediately to that movie, Conspiracy of the Trial of Chicago Eight, but also it has for those people who are interested in history and archives. I did intense interviews with every single one of the Chicago Eight as well as their famous lawyers. And these interviews are all on this website as well. So it's a real wonderful archive of American history. And for those people who are into that, it'd be nice for them to be aware of that. And I guess the other one is this, uh, the uh, the Keys to Directing book, which, you know, is for those people who are, are filmmakers or lovers of filmmaking or into, you know, wanting to learn more about filmmaking, this book, Keys to Directing. I've been fortunate enough to, again, read, you know, in many, many books on directing. And what's good about this particular book is it has embedded in it hundreds of clips to illustrate the issues that you face as a film director. So it's something that I'd love people to know about as well. Fantastic. Well, Professor Kagan, thank you so much for your time. This has been great. Well, listen, thank you for yours. I have a good pace like if you're going to have one. And it was good to meet you. How did you even get your start in writing? Oh, I was born to write. I started writing when I was like in high school, really. And I've been writing all my life. And many decades later, I've written in all kinds of forms. The only thing I've never really written, except maybe once or twice, is poetry. But I've done many novels, several nonfiction books, enough articles to fill, God knows, I can't even begin to count. Where did Moses Wine come from? Where did that character originate from? By accident, kind of. I was broke. And uh, I was living in Echo Park, District of Los Angeles, you know, Los Angeles. And I had written a couple of novels that had been published, but they didn't sell. And I was reading Raymond Chandler's books and Ross McDowell's books. And I thought, well, maybe there could be a guy of our generation. We're talking early 70s here. Instead of the Philip Marlowe type, the hippie type of that period. And the guy who had published my other books was the, uh, ran the book division of Rolling Stone magazine called Straight, Straight Arrow Books. It doesn't exist now, I don't think. Anyway, he was down in my house from San Francisco out in LA. I said, well, why don't we do this? And he said, yeah, that's great. <laughs> so I said, where do you want to go call them? And I just said, well, Moses Wine. And that was, that was it. I mean, it was one of those things. I wrote The Big Fix as a book in six weeks. The Big Fix was in your first exposure to Hollywood. Jennifer, on my mind, the adaptation of Air happened a few years prior to that. How was that experience for you? Terrible, except I got a lot of money <laughs> for those days. Well, I mean, the book itself and the movie are not that similar. 
The book is very noir, and the movie, the guy who came in to make the movie and to write it, two different people. The writer was Eric Siegel of Love Story fame. The director was a guy who had only made shorts named Noel Black, and they thought they, if they made it a very dark story, romantic, it would be a successful like Love Story. So they kind of ruined the book. And the producer was very, the producer was embarrassed. But it got me into Hollywood a little bit. You know, I started writing scripts in Hollywood before I had actually read one. It's very different from what it's like today. I did it all on instinct. How soon after The Big Fix does Hollywood come knocking again saying, we want to adapt this now? The Big Fix was made as a movie about six or seven years after it came out as a book. And actually, the sequel book, Wild Turkey, which was the second in the series, I was also hired to adapt, and the studio liked my adaptation. This was before I did the big fix, and the studio liked adaptation, and they were about to offer Richard Dreyfuss a deal to make it, and they pulled back at the last minute. I don't know, you know, that's what studios do. I don't know why they did this a long time ago. Anyway, I knew Richard, and he liked my books. He liked the big fix, I think, better as a book because it was more political. So we got together, and then we took it to Universal, and that's how it got made. How was it adapting yourself? You know, it's an interesting experience because you're always trying to protect what you're doing, and it's never simple because I worked with this woman, Jay Fresnel, and she was a very famous writer of the period. I worked with her on other things, and she said, get a movie made in Hollywood. You have to please everybody from the head of the studio to the elevator operator. I think that's very accurate, and that's why it's hard, especially if it's your own book. I mean, people are very weird about that because for a while I was a judge of screenplays for rewarding credit. You know how that system works? Oh, right. Yeah, the whole arbitration system. And I I did it for Dr. Rowe's novel that Milos Forman directed, and there were several writers after Dr. Rowe. When I read it, you know, you're supposed to weigh who contributed. And it seemed to me that it was all Dr. Rowe. Dr. Rowe refused credit because someone had touched his work. So people get very touchy about this kind of thing, or at least writers like Dr. Rowe. Anyway, no one else wrote anything in the big fake. So I, I was on, I've been on other films where there have been what you call diverse hands. How was Jeremy Kagan to work with? He was fine, but, you know, he came into it very, very late. He didn't was not involved with the development of the scripts. That was done with basically uh, Dreyfus and me. So, you know, I don't think Jeremy was, uh, I mean, the, people were laboring under the, the auteur system in those days. That's ridiculous in this film. I mean, it was the writer's film. I don't say that out of you know, arrogance is just, that's what it can be the case very often. I mean, you know, I invented the whole character in the whole thing. You said that you knew Richard Dreyfus. When had you met him? You know, I saw him on stage in Los Angeles doing a play called The Line. And I thought, God, this guy's really good. Then I thought, he's the one who could really play Moses Wine because he's like, was like me a lot. You know, I was basing him as a character on me. And, you know, I can't, I'm trying to remember how we got to know each other. But, you know, in the old days of Hollywood, things were 
much more friendlier than they are now, in general, in the whole world. And, you know, we were friends, but I can't remember exactly. It's interesting. It's a long time ago. I don't remember exactly how we first met, but we knew each other for a while before we made the movie. And it's one thing to know somebody, but to actually work with them in this capacity as co-producer, star, and then you know, working with you with the adaptation. I mean, how was that relationship? Richard's a flamboyant character, and uh, it was, but basically, it was pretty good. I mean, you know, I'd write some pages, go over to his house, he'd look at them, you know, he'd have comments, sometimes he'd like it, sometimes, you know, he'd say, why don't you do this, you know. Compared to most people, he had a very good sense of things. You know, writers always complain that studio people botch it <laughs> or botch up their work. Also, they complain that actors botch up their work. You know, I've had my work ruined by bad casting. I essentially cast Richard because I came to him and said, would you do it? And, you know, he'd read the book, so he... I mean, the whole cast, all the way from Richard on down, just super strong and so many... Great faces. I mean, to see, see you know, such a young John Lithgow or, you know, Bonnie Bedelia. I mean, just what a terrific cast. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, it was a good cast and um, interesting people, too. You know, I stayed in contact with some of them. Now, were you present during the whole shoot? Basically, yeah. You know, maybe a few days I wasn't, but I would say 85% of it. You know, when I worked with Paul Mazursky and other movies, I was always there. But Paul was that kind of guy. You know, we were friends, too. I think that these um, films are better when the people are like, have a good relationship with each other. And, you know, I know what you're talking about, the whole thing about the screenwriter goodbye. I had a hello and goodbye and hello again when I did uh, Busted Loose with Richard Pryor. But it wasn't Pryor's. Pryor liked me a lot, but it was other people. It feels like a strange experience, busting loose, as far as if memory serves, there's <laughs> extra scenes towards the end, and just like, yeah, there's two directors listed on that, I think. There were two directors, and uh, as a writer, I was hired three times and fired twice. Wow. And then, you know, it won the first Image Award of the MAACP, the first of their things, and they asked me not to come to the ceremony because they didn't want to give the writing award to a white guy. <laughs> this is, you know, a harbinger of many things to come. It was a huge commercial success for all of, all the botching of it. But, you know, if it had been done the way it was originally started, I think it would have been a great movie. What was it supposed to be? Well, it was the basic story of, of uh, the two people going across country on a bus, you know, with the kids. But it was written... In a, a lot more coherent manner originally. Then this guy, Ad Scott, came in who did it for Colored Girls, the play on Broadway. And he had never made a movie before. And if you've never made a movie before and you're dealing with Richard Pryor on the set, good luck to you. So the whole thing went absolutely haywire. The studio shut down production. Then Richard had that, the unfortunate thing with the cocaine and where he almost burned himself. And waiting for him to be better. And then they rehired me to fix what had gone crazy and brought in a new director, Michael Schultz. He had done a car wash with Richard, so he knew how to deal with Richard. 
And, you know, I knew how to deal with Rashid, but I Scott did not. You did not. I mean, I don't know. You know, it's strange. It is strange. But this is all a long time ago. I have no hard feelings about it. Was Richard just pushy, or did he know his own mind, or what was? The part of the movie I wasn't there for the shooting of was when Oz Scott came in, because Oz Scott did. The real story was Richard wanted me to direct it. And the studio didn't want that because my skin color was wrong. Oh, boy. And they were getting, they were getting pressure for the NAACP. They brought in the eyes, and the eyes didn't want to see me. They brought in other writers, and the whole thing that just went completely in a crazy direction. And I think Richard sensed that and couldn't deal with Oz, and it became a mess. I mean, Richard was very easy for me to, to work with, but I know that some people, he just, if he doesn't like what you're doing, he lets you know it. If that goes on on a set, then it's poison. You would direct pretty soon thereafter with my man, Adam. How was that experience for you? Terrible. You know, what happened was my father died. Well, he went into a coma three days before production in New York. We were at San Diego. I had to get on a plane and deal with that. So the whole time we're shooting the movie, I'm dealing with with my father in a coma with the family. So it was like, I don't even like thinking about it. I, I wasn't there. It's bad luck. When it comes to The Big Fix, how was it received when it came out? Pretty well. Not great, but pretty well. Most of the reviews were good. It made some money, and it did okay. Did it do well enough? Was there ever talk of a sequel? It lots of talk and never, never action. And then there were talks of doing it series and talks of this and that and the other. When it comes to, because you're writing screenplays, you're directing, and you're writing books still, how's that balance for you to be able to do all of those things? Well, you know, it's difficult for me to work in Hollywood now for two reasons. One... I'm old by their, by their, you know, and I think there's some justification in that part of things because unfortunately, most of the people go to the movies are 17 year old boys. And I don't think like one. I mean, maybe I did it when I was 17, but I'm a long ways from 17. The other thing is uh, the political situation makes it difficult for me because. I came out, uh, you know, right. I'm not an ultra-right winner by any sense. I mean, I, I'm for gay marriage. I mean, I my attitude toward marriage is uh, I decide who I marry, you decide who you marry. Okay, that's it. You know, in other things, I met a lot of resistance. So that makes it difficult. And also I started doing a lot of other kinds of writing that was being very well received. So <laughs> like everybody else, I... I went with, of course, uh, I think the best writing I did for screen was uh, Enemies of Love Story. That, everything worked perfectly. I mean, we had, the writing was never touched. The only thing that was said besides the singer, whose novel it was, died before he could see it. Because he had told us before, the great thing, he hated the screen version of Yentl. He hated it. And so we had to promise him, Paul and I met with him, we had to promise him that there would be no singing in the movie. <laughs> So it's, and it wasn't. Well, you mentioned Paul Mazursky, and how many times did you work with him? At least twice that I remember. Yeah, two that got made and a couple that didn't. You know, one other script that didn't get made, 
that almost got made, and we went to Italy for you know to scout locations. It was pictures of film and from Alberta Nolan novel. So you know, I worked with a few, but two that got made, and the scenes from them all. I think the problem with it was casting. I mean, it's one of the funniest stories ever because <laughs> we didn't think of it as being written for Woody Allen at all. Because Woody, first of all, we didn't do other people's movies. Yeah, you wouldn't think of him. Secondly, it was meant to be more serious as a film and less jokey. In fact, we were writing it in our heads. In fact, when I worked with script, when I wrote with Paul, the truth is, and I put this in the book, I did all the writing. He shares the credit, but that's the way Hollywood works. You know, if you work with a big director, they get to put their name next to you. You know, they collect a check. In a way, it's a, a bargain that, you know, is, I mean, other people who have worked with Paul had the same issue. You could ask them. Anyway, <laughs> uh, you know, everybody knows about it. They don't get excited. As you could <laughs> but, but, you know, we've talked a lot, of course, about what we're trying to do. So we were trying to do, you know, an American bourgeois version of Scenes for a Marriage, the Bergman movie. And what happened was... That we were thinking of doing it for Jack Nicholson and Jelka Houston because they had a relationship, of course, that was on again and off again that they could use in the performance. And that some of it would be funny, but mostly it was supposed to be, you know, heart tugging or painful too. And what happened was it was a very strange story because when I finished the script, Paul gave it to his agent, Sam Cohn was then a big shot in New York, who gave it to Meryl Streep, his client. And Meryl Streep said she wanted to do it. So we did know. Then we gave it to Disney, who had developed it, and they gave it a go right away. I mean, I've never seen anything that fast. And then they said, who do you guys want it? So uh, Paul said, well, Meryl has already read it, and she wants to do it. And Jeffrey Katzenberg, who was running the studio then, was curiously noncommittal about it. I'll tell you, you know, normally you'd say, oh, Earl Street, well, big deal. Okay, wait a minute. (laughs) This is not exactly Hollywood thing. So what goes on next is, they say, well, who's the guy? So, you know, we give a bunch of names, including Jack Nicholson, you know, Harrison Ford. Okay. (laughs) Then Kastenberg says, well, what about Woody? And who said, Woody? (laughs) He said, again, yeah, you know, with Paul directing this is such a strong script, maybe do it, you know? And so we walk out of the office, and of course, Ego runs into it like a, you know, a Sherman tank. And what, ha- what happens is, oh, well, you know, oh, we could be the first ones to what Woody does. Oh, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> I mean, then we also say, but he'll never do it. <laughs> 24 hours later, he says, yes. Wow. Okay. Wait, then another 24 hours, and Meryl's out. <laughs> Meryl is out because she can't stand Woody. She'd made Manhattan with him and hated him. Okay, little do we know. Anyway, so we're back in Kassenberg's office, and he says, how about Ben? And, you know, Paula did Down and Out in Beverly Hills and all that. So that and all they're thinking of is being studio heads is, uh, give that famous five-letter word, money. And so, but we didn't stop to think that the last person in the world 
Woody Allen would marry would be Bette Midler because that's like Aunt Sonia from the Bronx. Forget <laughs> it. So there was no feeling in the movie that they really needed each other in any way. So the whole thing didn't work, except in France, where it was a huge hit. <laughs> but they anything that Woody does, of course, they, oh, Woody, oh. You know, it was like he and, um, you know, Terry Lewis are their favorites. <laughs> so that's it. Anyway, that's the story of that one. You worked with the Moses Wine character for 30 years. What, nine books, I think it was, all told so Eight. far? Eight? Okay. Eight. Yeah, because I didn't write them. I moved in and out of them, you know, because I wasn't as devoted a mystery writer as I should have been, I guess. But I mean, I would write them when I had some kind of theme I wanted it would fit in with it. And I got to travel with it because I like to, uh, I went very early to China and I went to Israel and Japan. So, you know, these were all excuses for trips. <laughs> I mean, I had ideas that you know, I could justify it, but, you know, that was really what was behind it. How much of you is in Moses Wine? It was all me. There was me thinking of myself as a detective, which of course I'm not. But, you know, when I had detective friends that I would call up and, and ask about, you know, what they do. <laughs> but uh, basically, I used myself. I really appreciated that the character really had to put up with real life struggles, that he wasn't this kind of, you know, Sam Spade or Philip Marlowe where, you know, just picking up dames and tossing them aside. Right. Well, that was the idea. You know, I wasn't the only one to have done that. I mean, but I did it with that form with the American style of the detective story. I think I was the first. You know, you can see that in good crime fiction in Europe, too. So what are you working on these days? I just finished a book that's coming out in uh, September, nonfiction, but very personal, called American Refugees. That's about people who have moved from blue states to red states, as I have. And what does to your head, a whole bunch of things. And I'm also now working on, I'm traveling around with people running for president, because I work for the Epic Times, and I'm going uh, tomorrow to New Hampshire to hang out for four days with this guy, Vivek Ramaswani. Have you seen him on Not yet, sure. no. And then I'm going from there to Boston to see the debut of Robert Kennedy Jr.'s campaign at the um, Park Plaza Hotel that I'm coming back. I'm going to be doing a book. I write articles about it for the Epic Times, but then I'm going to turn it into a book that's uh, making of the president 2024 kind of book. Again, I like to travel, so I, I'll be in you know the early states a lot, Iowa, South Carolina, and tomorrow, New Hampshire, where I went to college. So, Is there any chance of uh, another Moses Wine book in our future? I don't think so. I mean, to be honest, I mean, nothing is set in stone, but I don't, I don't think that way that much anymore. Now, I will do more fiction. I, you know, I wrote a, a novel that I self-published. I never self-published a book, so I thought I'd try it, called The Goat. I'm a lifetime tennis player, and it's a Faust story set in the world of tennis about a guy my age who, you know, finally makes it to the 
doubles final of the senior tournament at his club, but has an accident during the, during the match, rushed to the hospital, they go to operate, and there's a woman from Nepal, a you know, cleaning lady, who looks at him and says, don't do operation, go see my cousin in the valley, he fixed you up. And he goes to the valley after all. Yeah, I'm giving you the short version. And um, the cousin is a, a Himalayan shaman, and he starts to give him his special mushrooms. <laughs> and and he asks him, you know, what he wants for this, you know. And he says, "Well, I'd like to, I'd like to go back, be twenty, and be a tennis player." So he, he goes back, and in a tradition of Faust, he does very well. I mean, <laughs> he starts to play with the doll and those, and win the French Open and all this stuff. But like in all the Faust stories. You pay. Well, cool. Thank you again. This was great. All right. Nice talking with you, sir. You have a good night and uh, good luck with all your travels. It sounds like you're going to be very busy. Well, now I got to go pack. All right. Cool. And we're talking about the big fix. And I'm curious, did you guys, I know, Jed, you do a crazy amount of research, but did you guys have a chance to read any of the Moses Wine books? I started uh, reading the big fix. I did not finish it up and busy with other things, but I read enough of it that a couple of things surprised me. The plot points, I guess Simon wrote the screenplay as well, but uh, a couple of the major plot points are Right in the first few pages of uh, The Big Fix, Lila Shea is dead, and the scene, the pickup scene in the bar happens real early on. But yeah, as far as how closely the film follows the book, I'm not, other than those, I'm not really sure. But no, I did not, I have not read the other books. I read the novel years ago, because I think we reviewed it, included it in that book I co-edited, uh... Sticking it to the man, revolution and counterculture in pulp and popular fiction from 1950 to 1980. A product drop there. And it was all right. I remember I remember thinking it was quite good. And I think I started his second one, Wild Turkey, but I think I didn't, I didn't get very far into that. Yeah, I've bought all of his books, but I haven't read any except for The Big Fix. And to your point, Jed, yeah, it is amazing because we don't get we don't get the light and fluffy intro that we get with this one because to what we we're talking about earlier, this whole idea of starting off, you know, with that, like the ragtime soundtrack and all this and like, and here we are, this is kind of this funny thing. And here he is with his kids and yada, yada. And then Lila Shea comes back into his life and they have kind of a, you know, Avena Costello type thing that they're doing the whole thing with the printing press and the guy who has the hearing aid and making him repeat things. And then when she takes the flyers and leaves, then suddenly it's Dreyfus who has a hearing problem, quote unquote, that he's making the deaf guy repeat himself. That's all cute and funny and stuff. And then you get to that moment where 
you know, you got the Leon Redbone playing and he's coming over. He's going to have sex with Lila and he comes in and he's just like, Hey, you know, where's my gal? Like looking around and then boom, here's the punchline. She's dead on the bed with the uh, bullet wound. And just that it's so cold later on when the one guy's like, she got in the way. It's like, what? You got to be kidding me. But again, that's Louis Vasquez. Like he was there with her when they took Louis Vasquez. Why? Like, I don't know if we ever really get that stuff either, but yeah, once that moment happens, we get real dark, but then we manage to come back out of it again. And it gets kind of light and fluffy again, not as fluffy as it was before, but it definitely still continues the humor. Like you said, it's not Fletch. It's not jokey kind of stuff that way. I just hit a water Buffalo. Can I borrow your towel type of thing? But it's definitely a lighter type of tone, but it is tinged with seriousness. It's, it's not as serious as Cutter's way when, you know, the one woman is dead in the fire, you know, that's, you know, and that happens towards the end in that movie. That's like the motivating factor to really just get that guy at the end of the movie. But yet, you know, this happens so early in the film. I want to say it happens 40 minutes in. So it's like right after the switch to the second act. Yeah. He doesn't call himself Dr. Rosenpenis anywhere. Yeah. Maybe, uh, maybe would have uh, made it more of a imprint on uh, popular culture. I don't know. Uh, Have you done, um, covers why you have? Yes. Just, uh, yeah. Just last year, I think. Yeah. Yeah. That was a lot of fun to talk about. And that was one that had eluded me for years. And now I'm so glad that I saw it and saw it so many times. Yeah, that's a brilliant film. I mean, the other film, as I said, the film that this reminded me of a bit, more than a lot of the others we've talked about, again, is Carol Reza's Zool Stop the Rain. Have you guys seen that? I like that one a lot, yeah. I haven't seen that one yet, no. It's about the, you know about this journalist who does this dope deal in Vietnam and he gets disillusioned and does this dope deal. The day he gets this merchant Navy mate of his, Nolte, to take to smuggle the heroin into the US and, of course... Doing the dope deal, he gets off, gets offside with all these people who are in the dope dealing business, who are much more serious players than he is. But Nick Nolte and his wife, whose name I cannot remember, who's got a serious pill addiction, go on this cross country trek to avoid Tuesday World. I think it's Tuesday World. I'm not sure. I mean, they go on this cross country trek to avoid these people who are chasing them because of the dope deal, and and they investigate a lot of the sort of interrogate a lot of the same sort of detrius detritus of, of the counterculture of what's left over in Vietnam that this film sort of did. Really good film, I think. It is. I need to read Dark Souls. I've been meaning to for oh, years. But. Brilliant. It's brilliant. Uh, absolutely brilliant. And the film, the film is also very good in that way of, you know, this is this is a film investigating, well, what, you know, this is where, this is the state of where we're now at with all of this stuff. Yeah, I definitely need to check it out as well. I That was recommended to me probably 25 years ago, and I still haven't watched it yet. Yeah, I'm just not a big CCR fan. I'm just kidding. I love CCR. <laughs> yeah, well, Cutter's Way, we'll Stop the Rain, and, and Big Lebowski there. you got to make a triple feature of them. Nice. I don't think we talked really about the scene with the linkers in jail, but I do want to point yeah. that out that I thought that, right was, that was a really, really nice scene, with the playing the radio and making them sing along while they... Uh, interrogate them and of, of course it's funny in the moment they're you know it's like god these these guys are 
paranoid and is this really necessary? And then later, Larry Bishop has got photo surveillance of all yes. that, including like, you know, when they think they're being clever, writing things down rather than saying them, he's got pictures of what they've been writing down. So, you know, it's like, oh no, yeah, you weren't paranoid enough. They really are looking at everything you're doing. No, the man, the man really is out to get you. Yeah. 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 There's that very poignant scene when Moses is watching that old footage too, watching all that Howard Epis footage. And then it really turns into a montage of this is not necessarily what we're fighting for, but this is how we fought. And just the camaraderie of these people who are all protesting kind of the same idea. I thought that was a really strong moment for me. The other aspect of that same with the leaguers in jail, which yeah, I thought was really good. It also illustrates a bit further down the track the way that, you know, Ephesus is the one that got away. Mm-hmm. And in a sense, he was, he was always had the seeds of that uh, opportunism, I think, you know, and he's kind of left this, he's kind of left this trail of people who are in jail or are just, you know, disillusioned or stuff like that. But he's, he's doing fine now. He's great. What's the timeline to Jerry Rubin? yuppie-ism and, and things like that. I mean, did this presage Jerry Rubin's, you know, turn in the, or was that already happening? That's a you know? really good question. I, yeah, because he was what, the yippie that turned into a yuppie? I yeah. want to say he became a yuppie in the 80s. I want to say he really bought into the Reagan dream. Of course, F. Murray Abraham screamed in that wig especially screamed abby hoffman to me but that when you find him i was like oh no this is jerry rubin isn't it so which one was it was it rubin or was it hoffman that was trying to lift the pentagon via esp that was them in that huge anti-war demonstration in washington i think rubin had that was back when they were all together as as yippies yeah because there was one part of the Howard Epis footage where I was expecting him to start talking about that. Again, I mean, it goes, it goes to the fact that this film, that's one of the, the vibe of the film and Kagan and Simon's before he shifted his politics, real skin in the game with that whole, the left Vietnam, those protest movements. And that shows up in the film. I enjoyed revisiting it. I'm glad I got to, uh, yeah, I, I don't want to sound down on it because it's not as good as I, thought it was the first time i saw it now was that a 70s thing though because i rewatched chinatown recently and it actually the second half of that film makes no sense at all you know it's a great film i mean it's, it's a terrific film but if you're actually looking at it from a plot point of view large parts of that film make no sense i have to watch chinatown again soon yeah well you know i know it's not a popular opinion but uh <laughs> yeah well your opinions on uh the long goodbye already uh <laughs> got you on the do not invite back list so yeah i know uh, i know i know i know i won't be on the protection booth 51st anniversary episode long goodbye in the last <laughs> we've already done it so it's okay uh our 52nd anniversary sorry yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> i challenge you to watch night moves again a film that you really got to watch a good half dozen times to sort of kind of squeeze any kind of Dense out of, but it's got it's a brilliant film. I love yeah. how it moves as well. Yeah, that was one of my favorite episodes to do. PIs in the seventies were investigating cases that half the time made no sense even to them. 
the whole world was upside down, man. <laughs> everything that we knew, everything that we thought was being replaced by Est and crystals and new age magic, man. And then, of course, 1980 happened and you all got back onto the straight and narrow. Yeah. It so reminds me of that line from uh, I'm Gonna Get You, Sucker. You know that government office building on 25th Street? Yeah. He went down to take it over. But they were hiring that day. The brothers walked in with guns. They came out with jobs. The brothers weren't mad anymore. <laughs> yes. Whitey. It's something else. Well, I want to thank my co-hosts, Andrew and Jedediah, for joining me today. Jedediah, what are you working on lately, sir? Well, I'm writing again. I can't really talk about it, but it's nice to be writing. Hopefully soon I'll be able to. If you're in France and you want to buy French edition of my books, that's the only place you get. They are wow. not available anywhere except France. So there you go. I have something to talk about now. I didn't know I was talking to Senior Jerry Lewis here. Not nearly as beloved. No. <laughs> it's big in France. And Andrew, how about yourself? Uh, I've got a new novel out called Orphan Road. Some people also say that makes no sense. But uh, I've got a new crime novel out called Orphan Road. And um, if anything I said made any sense at all, then you should you know, maybe consider going out and buying that book. I got mine as a Father's Day gift. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, very nice. But your kids are great. Right? Yeah. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. If you want to hear more of me shooting off my mouth, check out some of the other shows that I work on. They are all available at weirdingwaymedia.com. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world. (laughs) 